0: Lawmakers on Capitol Hill demand social media companies do more to protect children who use their platforms.
1: Their constant pursuit of engagement and profit over basic safety have all put our kids and grandkids at risk.
0: Several tech CEOs testified at a contentious Senate hearing. It's Wednesday, January 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, learning loss became a major problem for children during the pandemic.
2: The losses from 2019 to 2022 were historically large. Students fell by more than a half grade level behind in math, for example, nationally. That's a, That's a giant decline.
0: Now, though students overall are making significant recoveries in math and reading, some still aren't catching up. Plus, spiderwebs as a tool to trap DNA and track how biodiverse an ecosystem is. It's 4.01. News headlines are first.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Big tech executives are under more pressure to better protect underage users from online dangers. That was evident today on Capitol Hill where the heads of several major companies face anger from lawmakers and, in the audience, parents. Republican Josh Hawley of Missouri sparred with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, asking him if he had apologized to directly affected families, including those in the room.
4: Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people?
3: Zuckerberg then stood, turned around, and faced the family apologizing to them. In this exchange with Republican Senator Tom Cotton, TikTok CEO Shuji Chu disputed allegations that the popular social media platform helps China spy on U.S. interests. You will
5: you find content that, that is critical of China and on our platform. Next time you go on, are you scared that you'll be arrested and disappeared the next
6: time you go to mainland China? Senator, I, you will find content that's critical of China and any right. other country freely on TikTok. Oh. Okay.
3: Executives, including those from X, Snap and Discord, face similar questioning from Democrats on the ju- Judiciary Committee. Well, the FBI says it completed an operation to disrupt Chinese hackers that had broken into U.S. critical infrastructure. Intelligence officials came together to warn lawmakers about the severity of the threat. Here's NPR's Jenna McLaughlin.
7: Last year,
8: the U.S. government revealed that a Chinese hacking group called Volt Typhoon had broken into U.S. critical
7: infrastructure in Guam. That way, in the event China invaded Taiwan, for example, hackers would try to disrupt a U.S. military response. FBI Director Christopher Wray said the FBI broke into a large number of routers compromised by Chinese hackers to kick them out.
9: The FBI ran a court-authorized on-network operation to shut down Volt Typhoon and the access it enabled.
10: While the operation was successful,
8: Ray says it is just the tip of the iceberg. Jen McLaughlin, NPR News.
3: Well, as expected, the Federal Reserve opted not to change interest rates and markets end of the day lower. NPR's David Gurr reports there was a sharp decline after the Fed's chair announced it is not the most likely case the Fed will cut interest rates at its next meeting in March.
11: Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said there's a ways to go to achieve a so-called soft landing. The Fed is trying to get inflation under control without triggering a recession. Powell acknowledged the strength of recent economic data, but he told reporters at a news conference following the Fed's decision he and his colleagues want to see more. Fed policymakers said they want to have greater confidence that inflation is moving sustainably toward 2 percent, which is the Fed's target. Stocks and bond yields fell on comments from Powell. He doesn't expect the Fed will be ready to cut interest rates at its next meeting in March. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
3: The Dow closed down 317 points. The S&P was down 79 or more
0: than one and a half percent. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Melania Cass Recreational Center in Roxbury will host 75 migrants by the end of the day. It's the fourth family overflow shelter in the state and the first in the city of Boston. WBUR's Paula Moda reports officials acknowledge it isn't ideal to take the well-used community space, but they say it's the best solution for now.
12: Governor Maura Healy and Mayor Michelle Wood joined state and local officials in a walkthrough at the recreation center in Roxbury. The center has over 200 beds set up with sleeping bags and there's a play area for kids. Healy says the state had to act because dozens of migrants have been sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. More people will be housed at the center in the coming days.
7: We're here today because... We really don't have a choice. Families continue to come into this country, continue to come into Massachusetts.
12: Healy and Wu are urging Congress and the federal government to address what they're calling a crisis. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Muda.
0: Cambridge-based Biogen will stop developing and selling its Alzheimer's treatment at The company said today it will end its study of the drug, which was needed for full FDA approval. Aduhelm was initially approved in 2021 despite questions about whether it worked. Then regulators said it needed more study. The drug's $56,000-a-year price tag also caused Medicare to limit coverage. Biogen won full FDA approval of another Alzheimer's drug, Lakembi, last year. A black man has reached a settlement with the Arlington Police Department over racial profiling allegations. Donovan Johnson's lawyers say officers wrongly targeted him while they were chasing a robbery suspect three years ago. They say officers pushed Johnson to the ground, handcuffed, and arrested him. Miriam Albert of Lawyers for Civil Rights worked on the case.
13: This case is a quintessential racial profiling police case because the police was already in pursuit of a white male. But for some reason, they saw our client, who was a black male, and they diverted their attention completely to our client.
0: The settlement with the town of Arlington includes a substantial financial payment and agreements to implement increased anti-bias police training. WBUR has reached out to Arlington officials for comments. Well, not too cold tonight temperatures will dip to about 30 under mostly cloudy skies tomorrow looks cloudy with highs in the low 40s we might get a little rain and snow tomorrow night then it'll be mostly cloudy and in the low 40s friday with a chance of rain in the afternoon right now it's 34 degrees in boston
14: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations Other contributors include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for nearly a century supporting efforts to promote a just equitable and sustainable society More at Mott.org and the listeners who support this NPR station.
5: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
15: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Some good news on the education front. After the pandemic upended school as we knew it, a new report shows students making significant recoveries in math and reading. The Educational Opportunity Project at Stanford University collaborated with Harvard in tracking the first full year of post-pandemic recovery between 2022 and 2023. Now, not Everyone is catching up. Many of the students still struggling are from the poorest areas of the country. To talk more about what they found is Stanford professor Sean Reardon, who worked on the report. Professor Reardon, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Tell us uh, just briefly, how did you conduct the research?
2: Sure. What we did was we gathered state test data from 2019, 2022, and 2023 Mm -hmm. from 8,000 school districts in 30 states across the country. And we compared the average test scores of students in each of those districts. And then we measured how much students' scores had recovered by 2023.
15: And the headlines include that in math, students have made up a third of what they lost. It's good, but not quite so good in reading. Their kids have made up about a quarter of what they lost. I mean, are these results surprising? They are.
2: Um, I mean, a third or a quarter might not sound like a lot. but. You have to realize the losses from 2019 to 2022 were historically large. Students fell by more than a half grade level behind in math, for example, nationally. That's a giant decline by historical standards. And the third of a year of increase in math is also a very huge increase by historical standards. In a typical year... Maybe 2 or 3% of school districts in the country would see that kind of a gain. So to see it on average across 8,000 school districts is quite remarkable.
15: How are students doing it? Because the fear, as you know, was that schools are, are pillars for academic learning, obviously, but for all kinds of other things, for nutrition and socialization and the community. And there was fear that with them being closed so long, the damage might be irreversible.
2: Well, We don't know exactly how they're doing it and I think lots of schools are doing different things, but some of the research shows that one of the ways to help kids catch up most effectively is things like high intensity tutoring, extra school time, summer learning programs, the sorts of things that make sure kids have extra instructional time. It's hard to catch up when you're half a year behind if you don't have extra time to learn the extra material.
15: What did you find in less privileged areas where they are not catching up or not catching up as fast?
2: Yeah, I mean the bad news here is that the pandemic really exacerbated inequality between students in high poverty and low poverty districts, and students of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And the recovery has been strong, but it's been relatively equally strong across groups. So the inequality that was widened during the pandemic hasn't gotten smaller and in some places it's actually gotten larger. And so My fear is that the educational legacy of the pandemic may be a permanent widening of uh, educational inequality. And I think one of the things that might be useful is for states and school districts, superintendents, principals to kind of identify the districts and the schools and the students who are still furthest behind and really target the resources they have to try to provide extra opportunities for learning for kids in those communities. I think... Inequality isn't going to undo itself naturally. We've got to proactively seek to undo it. And I think with these data, we're in a position to kind of figure out where to target those resources most effectively.
15: Well, and there's an urgency here, right? There are federal funds in place trying to help students catch up, but those funds expire in September and they've been paying for things like summer school, like tutoring, like extra support. That's right. The federal government
2: provided a historically large amount of money to school districts across the country during the pandemic. And that money has been used and and may be part of why we're seeing such a large recovery. But that money has to be spent or at least obligated to be spent by September of this year. So not every district is going to have fully caught up by then. And so I think we're going to have to have states step in and carry the baton forward to help the school districts and students who are still behind to fully recover in the next few years.
15: Stanford Professor Sean Reardon, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me.
5: Republican lawmakers have imposed tough abortion restrictions in many states. Polls show those laws are unpopular with much of the public. Now, some of those same lawmakers are struggling to defend the laws. This next story is about one Republican state senator who was responsible for passing some very strict abortion laws in his state and is now trying to undo his previous work. Katie Riddle reports.
16: Tennessee is as red as it gets. Republicans here have a supermajority. They control large majorities of both legislative chambers and they control the governor's office. One member of that majority is State Senator Richard Briggs. On this day, he's standing in his office inside Tennessee's Regal Capitol building in Nashville. It's early days of this legislative session. His aide, Rochelle Frazier, briefs him on
17: upcoming measures. And then I have this bill from Representative Freeman, which...
16: Briggs is a military man. At 71, he still stands with attention. His district is in Knoxville, three hours from here. During the session, he rises at 3 a.m. many mornings to make the drive. Frazier tells him which of his colleagues want support for which bills.
17: Um, He is calling the right to die. Okay.
18: That that one you can send back.
16: One bill, Briggs is championing this session, something he's calling the Freedom to Have Children and Family Act. It would allow women to safely end pregnancies in which the fetus won't survive.
18: What to me is unacceptable is if you determine that there is a pregnancy that cannot live outside the womb, and you're going to force that woman carried that to term.
16: Briggs had a long career as a doctor. In the Army, he was a trauma surgeon. He's seen firsthand how these kinds of pregnancies can threaten a woman's health and her future chances of having another baby.
18: And, And that is the most basic human right we have, is the right for a couple to be able to have children in a family.
16: This is a new stance for Briggs. Five years ago, he wasn't known as an advocate for reproductive rights, quite the opposite.
18: Rather, in 2019, uh, we passed a trigger bill. A
16: trigger bill, meaning if the US Supreme Court ended the federal right to abortion, the bill would become Tennessee law. Briggs co-sponsored it. The bill laid out some of the strictest bans in the nation and harsh penalties for doctors who violate them. But at the time, Briggs says, its passing seemed like political theater.
18: I just did not see going into a long, long debate, discussion, knock-down, drag-out fight over something that might or might not ever happen. You thought it would never come to be. the, The truth was, I thought it would never come to be.
16: But it did come to be. Three years later, the Supreme Court overturned Roe, and the law went into effect. Briggs has not been especially contrite about his role in this legislation, but he has been fighting an uphill battle to change it. Some here say he has a long way to go to make things right.
7: I do think that we find ourselves in exactly the position that lawmakers intended us to be in. Elise Boos is an obstetrician in Nashville. We're scared to death to provide care and so it's withheld. She
16: specializes in high-risk and complex pregnancies.
7: I think when you sit down in front of a doctor, you always expect them to consider your interest when they make a recommendation. Now, says Boos, she has to also
16: consider her own interest and legal jeopardy when she advises patients.
7: And that feels like a violation of the oath that we take as physicians.
16: Under current Tennessee law, Boos is allowed to perform abortions when the mother's life is at risk. But the law is fuzzy about what exactly that means. And violations could get her up to 15 years in prison.
7: It's a black and white law, and obstetrics is nothing but gray. And so you don't know all the corners and all the clinical scenarios that you're going to have to practice applying the law to until you finally are in that moment and thinking, would this withstand scrutiny by an attorney general? Would this withstand scrutiny by... 12 jurors who haven't gone to medical school. Boos wants
16: to help her patients through difficult decisions, sometimes the most difficult of their lives.
7: Choosing to end a pregnancy when there's a lethal fetal anomaly can be very hard. I also think it can often be one of the greatest gestures of love that as parents we choose for our children.
16: Senator Briggs is working on legislation that would give more authority to doctors like Boos and lessen criminal penalties. Many in Tennessee support this. One recent poll showed 76% of Tennesseans support exceptions to abortion law for a non-viable pregnancy. L'Oreal Grasso is standing outside a shopping complex. It's in a conservative suburb of Nashville.
13: If it is not viable, then I can understand maybe the removal of the fetus.
16: Agrasso also considers herself anti-abortion. She doesn't even see these as the same issue.
13: But I am totally against terminating a viable living person that is inside someone.
16: Despite this appetite for change, there are significant roadblocks to achieving it. Will Brewer is a lobbyist and legal counsel for Tennessee Right to Life.
19: Senator Briggs wants to create exceptions that we believe are too broad.
16: Brewer says their organization is concerned this bill would potentially give doctors too much latitude.
19: Bad faith actors can fit a lot of things into that exception and get away with it.
16: The right to life's position looms large over Republican politicians here. Many fear that conservative rivals could unseat them in primary elections. John Gere is a political scientist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville.
20: Well, I think, again, it gets to this fear that you don't worry about the general election. What you worry about is somebody coming at you from the right. And so that you're gonna guard that flank.
16: But, Gear says, recent restrictions on abortion may have backfired.
20: Suburban women are leaving the Republican Party. But this problem that Tennessee has is not a Tennessee problem, and it's not a Republican problem. It's a problem of supermajorities.
16: 28 states have supermajorities, where one party has outsized control. But if voters' appetite to change abortion laws could nudge legislators toward the middle in Tennessee, Gear says, it could happen elsewhere. Hey. How you doing?
18: OK, well, come on in. We'll talk about it.
16: Back at the Capitol, Senator Briggs is holding court in his office, trying to round up support where he can get it.
18: Just because you pass the law doesn't mean it's immutable and it's never going to be changed.
16: In this case, change means restoring a woman's right to end a pregnancy in certain circumstances. We'll fix it. But it's proving stubborn to fix.
18: It has proven to be very stubborn.
16: A stubborn law to fix, even though it's a law he helped to create. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Nashville.
15: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, a constitutional scholar reflects on the effort by House Republicans to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And tech CEOs are grilled on Capitol Hill about risks to kids using their platforms.
21: WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston.
0: On Wall Street, it was a down day after the Fed held interest rates steady. The Dow lost 0.8 percent, the S&P dipped 1.6 percent, NASDAQ dropped 2.2 percent. In local business news, a consortium backed by Fenway Sports Group is making a major investment in the PGA Tour. The consortium will put $1.5 billion into the tour's new commercial arm. That investment could eventually double. The consortium includes Red Sox owner John Henry, team president Sam Kennedy, and basketball star LeBron James. This is WBUR.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University. Ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu.
0: Tonight is looking mostly cloudy with lows around 30 degrees. Another cloudy day tomorrow, but it'll be a bit warmer in the low 40s. There's a chance of a little rain and snow tomorrow night before midnight. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 90.9 WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness, with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at subaru.com/wilderness. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com/npr. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
15: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm
5: Ari Shapiro. In Seattle over the weekend, city and state inspectors showed up at four gay bars unannounced. Now members of the LGBTQ plus community are furious at city officials. Several other establishments besides the gay bars were also subject to police scrutiny. Vivian McCall has been covering this for the Seattle newspaper The Stranger. Hi, Vivian.
19: Hi, Ari, thank you so much for having me.
5: People who were at these bars over the weekend describe these actions as a raid. City officials dispute that term. What actually happened?
19: So this all starts early Saturday morning when state and city officials walked into this bar in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, which is Seattle's historically queer neighborhood, called The Cuff, and they started looking around. The bar owner says that they had flashlights, that pictures were taken of patrons, and a bartender was found to be in violation of state law for having an exposed nipple, which in Washington is actually something that the cops can cite you for if you're selling alcohol in the process.
5: I, I, I want to loop back to that law, but why would the police have taken photographs of people at a gay bar?
19: So that's still pretty unclear, but what it would really be if if a citation were given, they would need some evidence to back up that citation. So that's the reason that photos would have been taken. I will say that the board chair of the LCB has said that photos being taken was unfortunate, but it is something that happened.
5: And then tell us more about this law, because as I understand it in Seattle, it's legal to be nude, but not in a place that serves alcohol. Do
19: I have that right? (laughs) That's right. It sounds kind of funny. And one of the bar owners actually gave me a, a really good example of this. You know, there is a nearby park where a kickball game was going on, where people were playing in their jockstraps. But as soon as they walked into the bar, that would be considered a state violation.
5: Tell us more about the reaction from Seattle's LGBTQ community.
19: So they're not happy about what happened. A lot of people are horrified that pictures were taken. A lot of people were horrified at the image of a bunch of officials coming into a bar with flashlights. That is something that really recalls, you know, historical raids on gay bars that happened for decades where people would be arrested for simply being at a gay bar. And it also has to be said that not everybody at a gay bar wants people to know that they're there. Some people are not out to their family and friends. Maybe they're exploring this new aspect of themselves. And to have that then potentially exposed by the state is a really scary and invasive thing in their minds. Uh, It's also worth saying that Seattle is feeling really defensive of its queer spaces right now because just a few weeks ago, there's a nude beach in Seattle that's been historically queer for decades that could have gotten a children's park put on it through an anonymous donation at a time where queer people are being labeled groomers.
5: The Liquor and Cannabis Board put out a statement where they said, quote, the agency does not and will not target LGBTQ plus locations. And so what is likely to happen now as the fallout from this continues?
19: So what we're hearing from the LCB board, as well as state lawmakers, is finding a potential solution for this so it doesn't happen again. I talked to Jamie Peterson with the state LGBTQ caucus in the state Senate. He said that they're planning on meeting Friday to iron out some details on exactly how they can prevent this from happening, potentially scrubbing this regulation off the books.
5: That's reporter Vivian McCall from The Stranger. Thank you so much.
19: Thank you so much, Ari. The rich tapestry of life
15: on Earth is fraying, due in large part to habitat loss and climate change. Researchers are racing to track this global decline in biodiversity to understand its consequences and perhaps to counteract it through conservation efforts. Now there may be a new tool for monitoring animals, spider webs. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel.
23: For a long time, if you wanted to know which animals were in a particular place, you'd hike or climb into their habitat and then wait to see or hear them. But that approach can have its drawbacks, particularly if you're trying to reach remote places or if you're trapping animals. That puts a stress on the
6: animals, and especially if you're, I suppose, looking for rare and endangered species, that's not a great thing, not something you want to do.
23: Josh Newton is a PhD student in genetic biodiversity at Curtin University in Australia. In recent years, scientists have turned to a different way of monitoring biodiversity, DNA. Morton Allentoft, an evolutionary biologist and one of Newton's advisors, says you can think of DNA as ecology's version of everything, everywhere, all at once.
24: Every species that exists in a given environment, in a given ecosystem, they may be dying, decomposing, urinating, defecating, breathing, whatever. And all these processes facilitate the shedding of cells into the environment and all cells have DNA in them.
23: This is known as environmental DNA because it's DNA from creatures just lying around in the environment. Researchers have swabbed it off of leaves and flowers, filtered it from water, pulled it out of the air, and even picked it up in the guts of dung beetles. One day, as Alan Toft was walking around a lake in his home of Perth, he noticed heaps of giant webs in the trees
24: made by golden orb-weaving spiders. I've been told in my biology days, you know, that spider webs is sticky. So it's one of those things where you, hmm, you can see they're messy, they're dirty. And I was thinking to myself, maybe the spider webs, big passive air filters, they sit there for days or weeks, months, even that they may very well be capturing the DNA that are floating around.
23: Previous work showed that webs are good sources of insect DNA, including what spiders are gorging on. But Alan Toft and Newton wanted to see whether these webs were also trapping DNA from vertebrate animals, blown there by the wind or deposited by insects. So Newton drove to a woodland sanctuary about 30 miles outside of Perth and collected spider webs from the branches and bushes. We just got a a plastic stick. It's almost, if you look at Shrek where
6: Princess Fiona's collecting spiderweb fairy floss for Shrek. It's very similar to that process. (laughs) You just grab a stick and wrap it around. Were there ever spiders in the webs? We just gently ushered them off the web. None of them were collected.
24: So when we say this is non-invasive, well, the spiders may not really think that, but... uh...
23: (laughs) Back in the lab, they amplified the teensy amounts of DNA from the webs
24: and, whammo,
23: animals from down under.
24: It was wonderful. We could see these kangaroos, wallabies, in addition
23: to 13 species of birds, the motorbike frog, and the snake-eyed skink. But to really confirm that the webs were picking up DNA from local vertebrate animals, they collected webs at the Perth Zoo. And there they found DNA from giraffes, elephants, rhinos, orangutans, lemurs, meerkats. In other words, the technique worked and represents a new way of tracking animal biodiversity and alerting us when we should intervene to conserve it. findings are published in the journal Eye Science.
25: I think it's clever and cute. It's a nice non-invasive way of sampling for terrestrial vertebrates.
23: Elizabeth Clare is a molecular ecologist at York University in Toronto. She wasn't involved in the study.
25: There are thousands of papers studying the movement of DNA through water and very few on land. And so we really need more explorations like this to narrow down how far the material travels, how it accumulates and how long these signals last.
23: So that we can query this worldwide web for information on the status and future of the animals all around us. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel.
5: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, Israel has resumed bombing in northern Gaza after the southern part of the territory saw the heaviest fighting the last few weeks. Tens of thousands of people are facing desperate living conditions. Join Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi next Thursday, February 8th at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight and about 30 degrees. Tomorrow looks gray again. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. Around the same temps Friday with mostly cloudy skies, then the sun appears for the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners,
26: and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. And the Executive PhD Program in Business at Bentley, three years part-time, for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions, February 9th and 21st.
17: You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle.
0: One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador.
17: Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org fun.
0: Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
17: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org fun.
27: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. ON CAPITOL HILL, SENATE NEGOTIATORS ARE WORKING TO REACH A FINAL AGREEMENT ON A DEAL TO SECURE THE SOUTHERN BORDER, BUT REPUBLICANS IN THE HOUSE HAVE DONE AN ABOUT FACE ON THE BIPARTISAN MEASURE, NOW SAYING THEY WON'T SUPPORT IT. ALL THIS COMES IN A PRESIDENTIAL ELECTION YEAR WHEN IMMIGRATION IS EXPECTED TO BE A MAJOR TOPIC. HERE'S WHITE HOUSE PRESS SECRETARY KARINE JEAN-PIERRE.
10: THIS IS ABOUT HELPING THE AMERICAN PEOPLE. IT'S NOT ABOUT HELPING THE PRESIDENT. IT'S ABOUT THE AMERICAN PEOPLE. This is about securing the border. Republicans in the Senate are working with us to do just that. Republicans in the House should, as well, look no further than their effort to impeach Secretary Mayorkas, an impeachment that even conservatives say is unconstitutional.
27: The stalemate over immigration comes as Republicans in the House are seeking to impeach Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the border. The U.N.'s top humanitarian official is calling on countries to resume funding of UNRWA, the agency that helps Palestinians in Gaza. But U.S. officials say the aid agency needs to make some changes and hold staff members that took part in the October attack on Israel accountable. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman.
28: The U.N.'s humanitarian coordinator says UNRWA is playing an indispensable role in Gaza, and Martin Griffiths is calling on countries that paused aid to revoke those decisions. The U.S. is currently holding up about $300,000. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says UNRWA needs to do more to
17: restore confidence. It was not a punitive measure, but it is a wake-up call. We need to see fundamental changes at UNRWA to prevent this from happening again.
8: Secretary of State Antony Blinken has
28: been working on ways to get more aid into Gaza and is expected to travel back to the Middle East
27: soon. This is NPR. This
0: is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Today is day nine of the strike by Newton teachers with no signs an end is near. The president of a national teachers union was in Newton today to show support for teachers. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the head of the National Education Association encouraged union members to keep fighting for a fair contract.
10: NEA President Rebecca Pringle joined Newton teachers on their ninth day of a walkout. She told the crowd, who braved near-freezing temperatures, that they have the support of the NEA's roughly 3 million members.
17: I know that you will continue to stand up and lift up your voices and fight for your students and for your colleagues and for this community.
10: Newton Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller, meanwhile, requested that educators return to the classroom while the school committee and union resolve the contract. In a recent email update, she said the strike is harming Newton's children, parents and caregivers. For
0: 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A major donor to Harvard is halting his gifts, at least for now. Billionaire investor Kenneth Griffin has donated more than half a billion dollars to his alma mater. He gave $300 million to the school in April. He now says the school is, quote, lost in the wilderness. Harvard has faced scrutiny in recent months over its handling of anti-Semitism on campus and the departure of President Claudine Gay. Tonight, leaders in Malden will consider a ban on selling cigarettes and other nicotine products to young adults. The measure before the city council would ban sales to people born after 2004. Peter Brennan is executive director of the New England Convenience Store and Energy Marketers Association. He represents about a dozen tobacco retailers in Malden opposed to the measure. They believe the ban would hurt stores and wouldn't work.
9: Once you start banning these products, you take them out of a controlled, regulated environment You put them into the black market, and frankly, people don't stop using the products. They just get them elsewhere.
0: A similar law was approved in Brookline in 2021. The state's highest court is considering the legality of that measure. Skies will be mostly cloudy tonight. Lows will get down to about 30 degrees. It'll warm up to the low 40s tomorrow with more clouds. Friday is looking mostly cloudy and temperatures will be in the low 40s again. Saturday, the sun will make its long-awaited return with highs in the mid to upper 30s. And Sunday looks much the same. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR.
15: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro.
5: The House Homeland Security Committee made history this week. In a strict party line vote, Republicans moved to advance articles of impeachment against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for his handling of the U.S. southern border. Only one cabinet secretary has ever been impeached before in U.S. history. To talk about the context for these proceedings, we've reached constitutional scholar and law professor Philip Bobbitt of Columbia University. Good to have you here nice to be with you what's the actual constitutional standard for impeaching a cabinet secretary
1: well it's the same standard for all uh, civil officers it's treason bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors that is to say treason which can only occur during wartime a bribery which is the taking of a benefit for some civil or governmental act and some constitutional crime not an ordinary crime that is of the magnitude of treason or bribery.
5: Hmm. I understand the founders considered adding the word maladministration to that list, but James Madison persuaded them not to. What does it mean that the bar is higher?
1: In this case, treason and bribery had been agreed to by the convention. And one of the delegates, George Mason, suggested that that was too narrow. It was Mason who proposed maladministration. Madison objected. And so he said uh, that maladministration simply amounted to giving the Congress the power to remove the president over policy differences. Mason saw this and he immediately agrees. And then after that, we get the terms, other high crimes and misdemeanors.
5: So the intent of the founders is clear. The bar is high. And when we look at the articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, they accuse him of, quote, willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law in enforcing border policy, as well as, quote, breach of public trust. Do you think Republicans have cleared the bar? Have they made the case?
1: No, I think they've moved the bar. (laughs) What they've done is to take discretionary acts by an executive official, acts with which they disagree, and with whose consequences they express some alarm, and made that into a constitutional crime. Hmm.
5: Well, um, as I mentioned, there has only been one other impeachment of a cabinet secretary in history. This was against President Ulysses S. Grant's War Secretary William Belknap in 1876. W- when you compare and contrast these two episodes, what do you think that chapter of U.S. history can tell us about this one?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting case for two reasons. Uh, first of all, Belknap had clearly taken uh, extensive bribes. Belknap had uh, admitted this, he went to the president, he resigned, but the Congress went ahead with the impeachment, and that's the second interesting point. Belknap was acquitted, probably because he was no longer a civil officer. And we know this from the people who spoke about this in the Senate trial. And when you
5: compare the evidence in that case to the evidence that Republicans have laid out in this one?
1: The flaw here isn't evidentiary. The flaw is the charge. The Homeland Security Committee has not charged a constitutional offense. So the fact that they are distressed and enraged by the secretary's actions doesn't really attach to the impeachment clause.
5: We're living in a moment where impeachment has become much more common. Former President Donald Trump was impeached twice. House Republicans may even go on to try to impeach President Biden. Are there consequences to this tool being used more often?
1: Not necessarily. If you had a constitutional crime of the magnitude with which Donald Trump was charged, then it should be uh, charged and tried as frequently as it occurs. It's not the the frequency per se. It's the use of impeachment as a political stunt.
5: But isn't a political stunt in the eye of the beholder? I hope not. Well, go on. As a constitutional scholar, uh, tell me why you characterize this as a political stunt.
1: Because the law is uh, quite clear. It's not always clear. Sometimes there are hard cases. But when the law is clear, we expect our public officials to obey it, even if it presents a temporary outcome with which they find disagreeable.
5: That's Columbia law professor Philip Bobbitt. He co-authored an updated edition of the classic legal text, Impeachment, a Handbook. Thank you so much for talking with us.
1: Thank you
15: when the ceos of top social media companies testified before the senate today they received this not so warm welcome
0: mr zuckerberg
28: you and the companies before us i know you don't mean it to be so but you have blood on your hands
15: Lawmakers say apps like Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat have failed to keep children safe online. NPR Tech correspondent Dara Kerr joins me, and we ought to note this conversation will deal with child abuse and suicide. Hey, Dara. Hi. Hi. Tell us more about what happened during this hearing
29: yeah so as you heard senator lindsey graham told meta ceo mark zuckerberg that he had blood blood on his hands and that was just the beginning this hearing was as contentious as you get on capitol hill the senators really laid in to the ceos of meta TikTok, snap x which is formerly known as twitter and discord they basically said these companies have failed parents and children. The main focus of the hearing was about child sexual abuse and exploitation. Listen to this exchange from Senator Marsha Blackburn and Mark Zuckerberg.
10: It appears
25: that you're trying to be the premier sex trafficking site no,
2: Of course site not, Senator. In uh, this Senator, country. that's ridiculous. No, it, it is
30: Senator,
10: not ridiculous. Uh, you want to turn around and tell
30: these
5: people Why
30: don't you take it down? The lawmakers
29: say it's easy for predators to find minors on these social media apps and they say parents have told them that this has led to their children's being abused and which has sometimes
15: even horrifically resulted in suicide. Was there some specific incident or incidents that that led to this hearing being called now, Dara?
29: Yeah, it's, it's actually really reached a boiling plate. First of all, Um, there's been a ton of lawsuits filed by both parents and state attorneys general. And then last fall, a Facebook whistleblower came forward with internal data that showed nearly a quarter of all teens have received unwanted sexual advances on Instagram. And he said the company did little to stop it. Facebook, on the other hand, says it takes the issue seriously. Meanwhile, parents have been heavily lobbying Congress to do something to hold these companies account.
15: Um, and what are the companies doing to address this?
29: Yeah, so before this hearing, there was a mad scramble in which all the companies were trying to show that they take this matter really seriously. Meta rolled out new tools that stops teens from seeing certain content, and the other companies said they're investing in improvements on that front. But there's no real specifics about whether these new policies and tools actually make an impact. And lawmakers and parents say the platforms remain toxic for young people. Also, just hours before the hearing started, senators released internal emails from Facebook showing Zuckerberg refused to hire more employees in 2021 to work on child safety despite his staff's recommendations. So where do we
15: go from here? What's next?
29: Yeah, so this is a rare bipartisan issue where you hear Republicans and Democrats fully agreeing. Democrat Senator Chris Coons is working with his colleagues to get legislation passed this year. Here he is trying to get the companies on board.
15: Is there any one of you willing to say now
21: that you support this bill? Mr. Chairman, let the record reflect a yawning
15: silence from the leaders of the social media platforms.
21: There
29: are four other federal bills right now that address kids' safety online, mm-hmm. which lawmakers are trying to pass as soon as possible. SNAP is the only company so far that said it will
15: support one of them. So this is likely to remain a heated issue for months to come. That is NPR's Derek Kerr, and if you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the 988-SUICIDE-AND-CRISIS hotline. This is NPR News. Next week, Nevada holds its presidential nominating contests, but due to changes this year when it comes to awarding delegates to the Republican National Convention, some votes will count more than others. And the winner of those votes, we already know it will likely be former President Donald Trump. Paul Boger with member station KNPR explains how next week will be different for GOP voters.
11: With early voting underway, you might expect to see candidates asking voters to cast their ballot ahead of Nevada's presidential primaries on February 6th, but former President Donald Trump is urging his supporters to skip the primary altogether. Here he is at a rally in Las Vegas over the weekend.
18: Don't go on Tuesday, February 6th, that's two days earlier. Don't do it. Don't use a mail-in ballot. Don't do anything. It's a meaningless event.
11: His reasoning? He's not on the primary ballot. Instead, Trump is choosing to run on a different ballot on a different day, the Nevada Republican Party's caucus on February 8th. The dueling dates are confusing voters, and it's leading to a bit of chaos. Back in 2021, when the Democratic-led legislature voted to change the nominating process, they didn't require parties to accept the results. Citing tradition, the state GOP chose to continue using a caucus to determine its delegates. They also adopted new rules, candidates running in the primary, can't run in the caucus and even though there's no widespread evidence of voter fraud they enacted what they call voter security measures stuff like voter id paper ballots and no same-day registration it's left some republican voters frustrated
28: i am very displeased with the process this year i think caucuses are a messy long process
11: that's kelly johnson a registered republican who lives in henderson a suburb of las vegas like many republicans johnson is now left with a dilemma cast a vote she knows won't matter in the delegate count, participate in a process she doesn't like, or both, which is actually allowed. Johnson also isn't alone in her concerns. In a letter to Party Brass obtained by the Las Vegas Review-Journal last year, the Nevada Republican Club urged leaders to engage with the primary. Otherwise, they wrote, the party would make some feel, quote, disenfranchised, angry, and potentially less willing to support the Republican Party further. Trump is running virtually unopposed on the caucus ballot. The only other candidate left standing is Texas businessman and pastor Ryan Binkley, who doesn't have widespread name recognition. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley chose to follow Nevada state law and is running in the primary. But state GOP chairman Michael McDonald is telling Republican voters to focus on the caucus because he sees the primary as irrelevant.
20: You don't need February 6th. That's for the Democrats. February 8th, you come out to your location. You walk in with your neighbors, you sit with your neighbors and tell them how great Donald Trump is, and then you cast your ballot for Donald J. Trump.
11: That was McDonald at a Trump rally in Reno last month. Earlier that month, McDonald and five other party officials were indicted on felony charges for falsely pledging Nevada's electoral votes to Trump in 2020. Biden won with more than 30,000 votes. The Nevada GOP has repeatedly denied any allegations of impropriety, But McDonald's continued support of Trump is leading some to question the fairness of the caucus. Here's Fred Locken, a political science professor at Truckee Meadows Community College.
31: The confusion will just leave a bad taste in in anyone who felt disenfranchised in the process. Uh, very uh, Other than supporting the candidate that sort of drove this process, no other good comes out of it for the party.
11: Locken warns that distaste could extend past the primary and into the fall, with Nevada being a battleground state. Candidates will need every vote they can get if they hope to win here in November. For NPR News, I'm Paul Boger in Reno.
5: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR coming up just after the top of the hour. The Federal Reserve holds interest rates steady, but there are hints that could change soon. And a visit to an emergency hotline center assisting first responders in the Gaza Strip.
26: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com.
0: Join Here and Now's Robin Young Tuesday, February 6th at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason about his hit novel North Woods. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. Well, it won't get too cold tonight. Temperatures will dip to about 30 under mostly cloudy skies. Tomorrow looks cloudy with highs in the low 40s. It'll be mostly cloudy and in the low 40s Friday. Saturday, that thing called the sun will come out. Temperatures that day will be in the mid to upper 30s, and the sunshine should stick around through the weekend. It's 34 degrees in Boston. WBUR
26: supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass, where since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim maplewoodyearround.com.
2: WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider.
32: John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can, too, at WBUR.org slash legacy.
15: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
5: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Over the past few weeks, most of the fighting in the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza has moved south. But the north is once again experiencing heavy bombardment, which means that at least 100,000 Gazans, many of whom already lost their homes, find themselves in the middle of renewed fighting. NPR's Eder Peralta reports from Tel Aviv.
33: The last time NPR spoke to Tasneem Mahel was in October. Her house was destroyed, so she took shelter with her uncle. Since then, she's been moving around Gaza City.
0: It's very hard to describe how it's the conditions where it get hardly more and more. And we are still trying to survive.
33: Her family is not rich, she says, so food has become a luxury. Uh,
0: people wondering
26: if they can eat the paper of the trees.
33: The leaves of the trees. They're living in a real-life horror movie, she says.
0: We are still living this now uh, it's not the gunfire. Someone uh, the cut banging, the she wood.
33: explains. It's not gunfire, it's someone stripping wood from the building so they can build a fire and cook.
3: It's the
0: normal sound for us these days.
33: Following the Hamas attack in Israel, which killed 1,200 people, the Israeli military pummeled the northern part of Gaza for several months. Most of Gaza's population, some 2 million people, fled to the south. For the past few weeks, Israel also moved its campaign to the south. But this week, the Israeli military said Hamas has resurged in the north. So Israel has once again accelerated its bombing there. The humanitarian organization Mercy Corps still has a few staffers working in northern Gaza. And Arnaud Kemah, who oversees that work, says much of the north was leveled by Israel's bombardment. So life there is especially desperate.
6: They haven't seen vegetables in months. Bread is also extremely rare. They mostly eat uh, once a day. And uh, it's usually rice.
33: Kemal says the price of food and fuel skyrocketed, and that is made worse because few aid trucks are being allowed in by Israel. Kemal says even when the trucks make it, the distribution has been rocked by chaos. He says in one case, Gazans rushed to an aid truck desperate for food.
6: And people were like crushed against the the truck. Some others were like grabbing some uh, goods that were on the truck. And then in the end, I think they had to cancel the
33: distribution. In northern Gaza, Hamid Jamil, 24, sends us voice notes from Beit Lahia, just north of Gaza City. He says his days are consumed by standing in line for food, for water. He digs through the rubble looking for materials or firewood. in 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 the first days of the war, dead bodies were on the streets, he says. We used to dig through the rubble looking for survivors. But after all the misery I went through, he says, I stopped digging. It's not that we care less, he says. It's that we are exhausted. These days, he says, it feels like the first days of the war, they move from place to place, trying to avoid the constant Israeli bombardment. Sometimes he passes bodies on the street, but there's nowhere to take them. Most of the hospitals are barely working. There is nowhere to bury them. So the only thing he can do is take off his jacket and drape it over the body. Eda Pralta, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
15: Troubled airplane maker Boeing reported its earnings today, but those financial results were overshadowed by questions about quality control at the company after a fuselage panel blew off a 737 MAX 9 jet in midair earlier this month. NPR Transportation Correspondent Joel Rose is with us in the studio now. And Joel, I know there are still like a zillion questions about this incident, what happened, why, what it means for Boeing. How did the company handle all that on this call?
34: Yeah. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun acknowledged that this was not a normal earnings call. It's clear that everyone is focused on this dramatic incident you described where the door plug panel blew off an Alaska Airlines MAX 9 jet in mid-flight. And in light of that, Calhoun said the company isn't even going to try to offer any financial guidance right now.
18: We are not issuing financial outlook for 2024 today. Now is not the time for that. We will simply focus on every next airplane and ensuring we meet all the standards that we have and that our customers demand.
34: Boeing did release its year-end numbers for 2023. They were not terrible. The company lost $2.2 billion, but that's actually its best result in several years since the crashes of two Boeing MAX 8 jets in 2018 and 2019 that killed 346 people. Boeing was finally just starting to pull itself out of that hole, and now this latest incident has thrown the company right back into chaos.
15: Um, Financials aside, Joel, did Boeing say anything new about what caused this latest incident?
34: No. Calhoun said he doesn't want to get ahead of investigators with the National Transportation Safety Board, they're expected to release preliminary results from their investigation in the coming days. There's a growing consensus that the plane likely left Boeing's factory without four key bolts that are supposed to hold that door plug panel in place. The NTSB has already raised the possibility possibility that the bolts were not there. And a self-described whistleblower inside Boeing has said that the bolts were not reattached after the door plug was removed for repair work at the factory. Calhoun did not comment on any of that today, though he said again that Boeing is responsible for this mistake and has to make sure that it does not happen again.
15: How? Like, how are they going to make sure it does not happen again?
34: Calhoun got several variations of that question from analysts on this call today. Boeing leaders held a day-long stand down, they called it, at their factories last week to focus on quality. Calhoun says the company plans to spend more time listening to its own engineers. It's also bringing in an outside safety auditor. This is on top of more oversight from the Federal Aviation Administration and from the airlines that operate these planes. But longtime observers are skeptical, some of them, that this is going to be enough. I talked to a former Boeing engineer named Peter Lemmy. He says the problems may run deeper than management is ready to admit.
27: I'm sure they're hoping for a quick fix, but this is like a cancer in the system. And how far is it infiltrated? And what are you going to do to eradicate it? I think it's going to take years for Boeing to really get back to where they should be on quality and manufacturing.
15: Joel, what about this year? I mean, did we learn anything more about Boeing's outlook for 2024?
34: Well, Boeing has basically no choice but to slow down production. Regulators at the FAA took this very unusual step of placing production caps on Boeing's factories until regulators are satisfied that quality control is better. Boeing says it will continue to produce 38 of its max jets per month, but that is not as many as it was hoping to sell. And there's more bad news for Boeing. The company this week withdrew its request for an exemption from federal safety rules for its new MAX 7 jet. It was hoping to speed up certification so that the plane could start flying this year. But Boeing backed down under mounting opposition on Capitol Hill, and that's likely pushing certification back into next year.
15: And Pierre's Joel Rose. Thank you.
34: You're welcome.
5: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from JITASA, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. JITASA is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at JITASA.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is NPR.
0: Thanks for spending part of your afternoon with WBUR's All Things Considered. Cambridge-based Biogen is pulling the plug on its controversial Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm. Blockbuster sales expectations did not pan out. More at 5.50 here on 90.9 WBUR.
21: WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com.
33: I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9
23: WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news
33: station.
0: The Federal Reserve held interest rates steady today, but Chair Jerome Powell hinted rate cuts may be coming soon.
35: The timing of that is going to be linked to our gaining confidence that inflation is on a sustainable path down to
0: 2%. It's Wednesday, January 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. As the six-month anniversary of the Maui fires approaches, residents say the long-term recovery has to consider the risks of climate change.
36: If we rebuild everything exactly the way it was, then we have the same vulnerabilities as we had prior to the fire.
0: Also coming up, an anthropologist is working to help people who take part in DNA studies get access to the findings. That usually doesn't happen, especially in the world's most marginalized communities. It's 501. First, this hour's top news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House is blasting the Republican-led impeachment effort against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the administration is also lambasting the hard right in the House for attempting to torpedo a bipartisan bill that would step up enforcement at the southern border.
26: White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre called out House Speaker Mike Johnson for backtracking on bipartisan attempts to address security at the southern border.
10: In October, Speaker Johnson said we must come together and address the broken border. And in November, he said, I think we can get a bipartisan agreement on border security. But suddenly, we've heard a change of tune."
26: A group of senators is working to finalize the details of bipartisan legislation that would strengthen border security. But without reviewing the final text, Johnson has called the bill insufficient. Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump and hard-right members of the House have increased the pressure on Johnson to reject the measure. Winsor Johnston, NPR News.
4: The head of the FBI is warning Chinese hackers are targeting critical American infrastructure. Christopher Ray says China wants to put itself in an advantageous position in case of a future conflict with the U.S. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas.
5: Testifying before the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, Ray had a stark message for lawmakers.
31: China's hackers
9: are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike.
21: The FBI director says water treatment plants, pipelines, transportation systems, and the power
5: grid are all examples of U.S. critical infrastructure that are being targeted by China's state-sponsored hackers. Ray told lawmakers that Beijing's efforts pose a threat that demands immediate
20: attention. Ryan Lucas and Pierre News, Washington.
4: The CEOs of some of the major social media companies, including Facebook Parent Meta, TikTok, and X, testified today in a Times heated Senate hearing on child exploitation, hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee prompted by rising concerns about child safety on platforms. The Federal Reserve has wrapped up a two-day meeting in Washington, leaving short-term interest rate targets unchanged. The Fed also signaling it is closer to cutting rates than raising them by omitting any language about possible rate hikes. But also, inflation is approaching the Fed's 2% target, and Fed Chair Jerome Powell said when that will actually happen is not clear.
35: Inflation has eased from its highs without a significant increase in unemployment. That's very good news. But inflation is still too high. Ongoing progress in bringing it down is not assured. And the path forward is uncertain.
4: That uncertainty definitely weighed on Wall Street. Today, the Dow fell 317 points, a drop of nearly 1%. The Nasdaq fell more than 2% today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts has a new overflow family shelter site. As of today, the Melnia Cass Recreational Complex in Roxbury is giving 75 migrants who recently arrived here a place to sleep at night. At the site this morning, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu said she's proud Roxbury has stepped up.
10: And we are proud that in the midst of this national crisis, in the midst of this statewide crisis, the city of Boston continues to set the standard for what it means to deliver resources and do our part.
0: Governor Maura Healy promised the shelter, which has more than 200 beds, will be temporary.
10: We will be out before
7: June. It is important to have this site available to the community um, for activities come June.
0: The governor continues to press the federal government for more help to address the ongoing influx of migrants. State police have indefinitely suspended two troopers indicted in a federal bribery case. State police say Sergeant Gary Cedarquist and Trooper Joel Rogers will not get paid while off the job. The two are among six people accused of accepting bribes in exchange for giving passing scores on tests for commercial driver's licenses. Federal prosecutors say at least two dozen licenses were given to drivers who didn't pass their tests. Dozens of experts gathered on Martha's Vineyard today. They're figuring out how to move an 11-ton whale off a beach. As Eve Zukoff reports, the body of the young female endangered right whale was found washed up on Sunday.
36: Expert teams say they're now ready to haul the whale into a nearby marina via boat and then onto another beach via truck so that a post-mortem exam can safely begin. Kathleen Collins with the International Fund for Animal Welfare says her team is eager to understand what caused the whale's death. They'll look to see
13: if there is any evidence of blunt force trauma, for example, from a vessel. They'll do a full analysis of any kind of stomach
36: contents and then, of course, for any of those entanglement wounds. After the exam is complete, officials will bury the whale's carcass in the sand, where it can decompose naturally. For the New England
0: News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. Taking a look at the forecast, tonight's looking mostly cloudy with lows around 30 degrees. Another cloudy day tomorrow, but it'll be a bit warmer in the low 40s. Friday should be in the low 40s again with mostly cloudy skies. This weekend, we'll finally get some sunshine with highs both days in the mid to upper 30s. This is WBUR.
14: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is NPR.
15: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
14: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Coming
5: up, we remember a Broadway legend, the original Scarecrow in The Wiz, and that was before his three Tony Awards. First this hour. After almost two years of raising interest rates to their highest level in more than two decades, the Federal Reserve could soon be ready to start cutting rates, but the nation's central bank did not take that step today. If inflation continues to moderate, families and businesses could see lower borrowing costs sometime this spring. NPR Scott Horsley is here to explain. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. We've seen encouraging numbers on inflation recently. So why isn't the Fed ready to declare mission accomplished and start lowering rates?
9: You know, the Fed is trying to strike a balance. Uh, It doesn't want to cut interest rates too quickly and run the risk of reigniting inflation, but it also doesn't want to wait too long and cause the economy to slow down more than necessary. We have seen better progress on inflation than the Fed expected in recent months. But it's been such an unpredictable ride over the last few years. And the Fed has been burned in the past when the economy didn't behave the way they thought it was going to. So Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says he and his colleagues are just going to need some more time before they feel confident that inflation is really under control. What do we want to see? We want to see more good data.
35: It's not that we're looking for better data. It's We're looking at a continuation of the good
9: data that we've been seeing. For example, a lot of the drop in inflation so far has come on the good side, which is mainly thanks to untangling supply chains that were tied in knots during the pandemic. In order to make additional progress on inflation, we're probably going to need to see see moderating prices on the services side, things like car repair and restaurant meals. And that's not guaranteed. So the trend is encouraging, but we're not across the finish line just yet.
5: Well, when would you expect the Fed to start cutting rates?
9: The next time Fed policymakers get together is in March, and this morning investors were betting there was at least a 50-50 chance we would see a rate cut at that March meeting. Powell poured some cold water on that idea this afternoon, although he didn't completely rule it out. We're only going to get one more month's report card on inflation between now and that March meeting, and the Fed chairman says that's probably not going to be enough for policymakers to tee up their first rate cut. We're going to be looking at this meeting by meeting.
35: Based on the meeting, Today, I would tell you that I don't think it's likely that the committee will reach a level of confidence by the time of the March meeting to identify March as the time to do that. But that's, that's to be seen.
9: The stock market was not too happy about the idea of having to wait longer for a rate cut. The Dow tumbled more than 300 points. Investors are still betting, though, we'll see a rate cut by May. And that would be encouraging for anyone trying to get a car loan or borrow money for a business or just carrying a balance on their credit card.
5: Uh, It's an election year, to state the obvious, and the Fed is starting to get some political pressure. How are Powell and his colleagues dealing with that?
9: Yeah, politicians are starting to weigh in on both sides. We've had Democratic lawmakers urging the Fed to cut rates more quickly in hopes that'll boost the economy and maybe give a lift to President Biden's reelection chances. We've also seen conservative commentators urging the Fed to go slow in hopes a weaker economy might give an edge to Donald Trump. Powell was asked about those political crosswinds today, and he basically pledged that he and his colleagues are going to tune that out and just do their job.
35: The job Congress has given us is price stability and maximum employment. Price stability is absolutely essential for people's lives, most importantly for people at the lower end of the income spectrum who are living at the edges.
9: Powell has shown in the past he's able to stand up to political pressure, and that's important because a Fed that gives in to that kind of pressure is generally not helpful for the economy or people's pocketbooks. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome.
15: Let's head overseas now. Gaza's health system is collapsing under the weight of nearly four months of war. Paramedics are struggling to reach survivors. Hospitals are under attack. But as NPR's Abitrawi reports, emergency responders in the occupied West Bank are assisting rescue efforts in Gaza. And a caution, this story contains scenes of fighting in Gaza, which some may find upsetting.
37: In the Palestinian Red Crescent's headquarters in the West Bank, city of Ramallah, you can hear the voices of Gaza's first responders more than 60 miles away, crackling over radio waves in real time as they speak to one another. I'm in Dir al-Balah on Salah Road, the man says. I'm trying to reach the car that was hit, he says, before his voice cuts. The calls for help are heard in a spacious office in Ramallah where emergency dispatchers wearing the Red Crescent's signature red uniform answer 101 calls, the equivalent of 911. Gaza's 911 system is down, but sometimes they reach dispatchers here in Ramallah, like this call on December 23rd. The woman on the line is in the Jebelia refugee camp in northern Gaza. She's with another woman in active labor with no way of reaching a hospital. The Ramallah dispatcher connects the caller with a Palestinian doctor in the West Bank city of Hebron or Khalil. The doctor says, dry the baby. It doesn't matter what the cloth is. Dry him with that cloth and then wrap him in another. Try to keep him warm. The doctor checks. Can you hear me? The caller responds yes. And the doctor continues. Keep patting him until he coughs. The Red Crescent shared this recording with NPR. A call that overcame physical Israeli security barriers and the territory that separates the Gaza Strip from the West Bank. Nibal Farsach is the spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent. She spends her days trying to reach colleagues in Gaza, where phone lines and internet are often down. It is extremely hard because it makes me feel constant fear and panic. Like, I'm not sure regarding their safety, if something bad happened to them. During our conversation, her phone rings. It's Amra Ali, a colleague and media officer in Gaza she hasn't heard from in days. He tells her he's still in Khan Yunus, the site of intense fighting now between Israeli forces and Hamas. Ali tells her it's been difficult to reach the Red Crescent's Al-Amal hospital in the city, where thousands of people are sheltering and hundreds of patients are inside. She hands me the phone to speak with him. I ask him about the situation in Khan Yunis. Israeli troops have encircled the city. Israel suspects hostages taken in the October 7th Hamas attacks might be held in tunnels
38: there.
37: (inaudible) Ali uses this moment with a foreign reporter to talk about the struggle to survive. He says there's no electricity and his apartment has no running water. There are no safe routes out of Khan Yunus, he says. He tells me two of his cousins and their 85-year-old grandfather were killed days earlier from an Israeli airstrike on their building in Khan They had no connection to any militants, Hadi says. He also wants me to know that he has seen children, babies, who have had their legs amputated because of airstrikes. In Ramallah, Farsakh collects these first-hand accounts to share with the world. Since the beginning of the
30: war on Gaza, our teams have been working on the ground tirelessly trying to save people's lives. They evacuate the wounded and those who have been killed by the continuous bombardments.
37: Farsakh says several people, including a newborn baby, have been killed in recent days at the LML hospital complex and 11 Red Crescent workers have been killed in Gaza throughout the war.
30: Eleven in total, eight of them were on a duty, were working as paramedics trying to save people's life at the moment where they were targeting. Although our ambulances have very clearly the Red Crescent
37: uh, emblem. Israel says Hamas militants have used hospitals and ambulances as cover. The Red Crescent's two hospitals in Gaza are no longer functioning, like most of Gaza's hospitals. But the aid group continues to respond to emergencies in Gaza, like this call the Red Crescent shared online. A 15-year-old girl pleads for help. She can see tanks. Shots are fired. The Red Crescent says she's killed, along with three other children and two adults in the car. But there was one survivor, a six-year-old girl. Dispatchers in Ramallah stayed on the line with her for hours, connecting her with a specialist in psychological support. An ambulance was sent to rescue the girl. The outcome of that rescue effort in Gaza City isn't known, but Palestinian Red Crescent staff in the West Bank ensure her story is. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Ramallah and the Occupied West Bank.
5: Let's take a moment to remember a Broadway legend. Actor and choreographer Hinton Battle died this week at the age of 67.
15: Battle is perhaps best known for playing the original Scarecrow in the Broadway production of The Wiz.
5: Wiz was just the beginning for Battle. He went on to win three Tony Awards for his roles in Sophisticated Ladies, The Tap Dance Kid, and Miss Saigon.
15: And Battle dazzled on screen, too, in movies like the 2006 Dream Girls.
5: He had a long list of television credits, including Quantum Leap and Touched by an Angel. He even played a singing demon in a musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, compelling his victims to burst into song and dance.
21: I come from the imagination, and I'm here strictly by your invocation. So, what do you say? Why
20: don't we dance so while?
15: In a post on X, Stephanie Mills, who played Dorothy alongside Henton Battle on Broadway, wrote, My dear Scarecrow, you've joined the heavenly cast. I will miss you forever.
29: Maybe there's a chance for you to go back now that I.
5: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, are coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered. Almost six months after the Maui fires, recovery means a lot more than removing debris and rebuilding. Residents of the island want to make sure preparing for climate change is a big part of the process.
21: WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu.
0: On Wall Street today, the Dow dropped 0.8 percent, the S&P lost 1.6 percent, and NASDAQ dropped 2.2 percent. In local business news, two of the eight online sports betting platforms doing business in Massachusetts are pulling out of the state. WinBet confirmed today it plans to end operations here. Its end date will depend on what gaming regulators say at a meeting tomorrow. The platform Better announced last week it'll not renew its license. The two reported the least amount of revenue out of all eight platforms last month. Today marks one year since sports betting became legal in Massachusetts.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org
0: summer. Skies will be mostly cloudy tonight. Lows will get down to about 30 degrees. It'll warm up to the low 40s tomorrow with more clouds. Friday is looking mostly cloudy and temperatures will be in the low 40s again. Then Saturday, the sun will make its long-awaited return with highs in the mid to upper 30s. Sunday looks much the same. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food—from employee meal plans to on-site staffing—with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com/NPR and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
15: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
5: And I'm Ari Shapiro. The presidential primary is not over, but for most Republicans, it is. Donald Trump is the likely nominee, and he's already begun to speculate as to who he'd choose as his running mate, like this comment he made last week on Fox News.
21: The person that I think I like is a very good person pretty standard. I think people won't be that surprised, but I would say there's probably a 25% chance it would be that person.
5: But he also downplayed the importance of a vice presidential candidate.
18: It's never really had that much of an effect on an election.
5: Historically, the nominee announces their VP pick right around the nominating conventions in the summertime, but Trump has never been one to follow tradition. For the NPR Politics podcast, political correspondents Susan Davis, Sarah McCammon, and Mara Liasson sat down to talk about the calculations Trump may be making, or in fact may have already made, in deciding who his running mate should be.
36: In 2016, Donald Trump picked Indiana Governor Mike Pence. And at the time, it was seen as making up for the deficiency that he might have with the evangelical base or with people that were concerned about his socially conservative credentials. I don't think that that part of the base has those concerns about Donald Trump anymore. He doesn't have to worry about
30: base support. Iowa exit polls would tell you that he does not have to worry about that. So in a a 2024 general election, what is Trump looking for? Well, you know, like President Biden, Trump is facing concerns about his age. So he might want someone younger. Even a lot of Republican voters express concerns about his temperament. They say they kind of like it, but they also are concerned about it sometimes. So he may be under pressure to pick someone with a track record that suggests more stability or moderation. He is, of course, an older white male. Now, that's not something Republicans are as inclined to be worried about. But he does like to claim that his policies are good for women, good for people of color. And picking a candidate based on those criteria might insulate him from some of the criticism around those issues, and also, you know, at least help him make the argument to general election voters that he cares about women or people of color.
38: You know, it's interesting. Sarah just said that in Iowa, the exit polls showed that he has no problems with his base or evangelicals, but the New Hampshire exit polls showed that he does have problems with independents and moderates, and he did very poorly among those. He did great among regular Republicans. So the question I have is, You know, Donald Trump often acts as if he believes in the political version of the cable news business model, which means you don't have to have a large audience or even an expanding audience. You just have to get the people that are your audience to watch you 24-7. And if that's what he believes, that it's all about getting a really enthusiastic group of supporters, then maybe he would go for somebody that
30: is just as mega as him. On this question of appealing to moderates, what I keep thinking about is this conversation I had with kind of a low-level Trump advisor during the 2016 campaign cycle who said, you know, most candidates appeal to the middle and then sort of bring in the fringes. Trump appealed to the fringes and brought in the middle. And so, you know, I think the question is, is he willing to try to appeal to the the middle uh, with his vice presidential pick? Sarah, let's talk about some of the names
36: that could likely be on a Trump running mate list. I think one of the places that nominees tend to look to, at least historically, is their field of rivals from the primary campaign. So who among there might stand out on this list?
30: Well, I would certainly look at the uh, gentleman on the stage with Trump on primary night in New Hampshire. We saw two of his former rivals, Vivek Ramaswamy and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott uh, standing there with him. They've endorsed him, as has uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who was not there that night. And they certainly seem to want the job, especially if you listen to Tim Scott and, and the way he interacted with Trump.
18: You must really hate her. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's uh, a shame. Uh-oh. uh-oh.
1: <laughs> I just love
18: you. No, that's that's why he's a great politician. Tim Scott, of course, was
30: appointed initially before he was a- elected by Nikki Haley when there was a vacancy in the Senate. It sure sounds like he wants the job based on the way he and Trump were, were talking about Haley. Yeah, that was kind of a little cringe because I feel like he was trying a little too hard in that moment. If there was any
36: doubt Tim Scott is auditioning for vice president, it seemed pretty clear the night of New Hampshire, but... Mara, that does raise the question of Nikki Haley because, look, she seems to fit the bill of everything we just discussed. She appeals more to independence, to women and to the center, and she represents a wing of the party that has soured on Donald Trump. But these two people don't seem to like each other very much.
38: They certainly don't seem to like each other now. However,
36: if you're going to be on the ticket with Donald
38: Trump and he wins, that is about one of the fastest routes to – possibly becoming president because he cannot serve a second term. So I think any ambitious politician, especially in the Trump Republican Party, would find a way to grovel or kiss the ring, as 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 Trump sometimes says, bend the knee and get on the ticket.
36: I also think, you know, often vice presidents come from Capitol Hill. And I would say that if you were pu- putting names out there, a couple of names come to mind specifically. Obviously, we referenced Tim Scott in the Senate, but in the House, um, Nancy Mace, a Republican from South Carolina is someone whose name gets thrown out there. And also Elise Stefanik, a Republican from New York, a member of House Party leadership, and someone who has very methodically and very diligently worked to establish herself as one of Trump's strongest allies on Capitol Hill.
8: I'm proud to be the first member of Congress to have endorsed President Trump for re-election, the first. uh, And I would be honored to serve in a Trump administration in any capacity.
30: Yeah, Nikki Haley's not the only female Republican that that Trump has to choose from. And Stefanik seems to be campaigning for the job pretty openly. Mara, one thing
36: I think is worth thinking about Elise Stefanik in the context of vice president is I do think that Republicans want to put up a strong candidate for two reasons. One, Donald Trump is a one-term president if he runs again. So whoever he picks as vice president is going to be seen as a likely 2028 nominee. And that person is going to be going up against potentially in debate. We don't know if there will be debates, but if there is a debate against Vice President Kamala Harris. And there is a real hunger among Republicans to not just campaign against Joe Biden, but to campaign against Kamala Harris as sort of the de facto president. And I think... You can see the argument for putting up a woman, someone who has a bit of an attack dog reputation. I think Trump has called her a killer, which is one of the finest compliments. He can pay a politician. And I think the Kamala Harris factor should be noted here
38: the kamala harris factor is huge one of the things that republicans have been doing and i think you can expect to hear them do it a lot more how about on a daily basis is that because joe biden is 81 because he's called himself a transitional figure that they will be saying kamala harris is the real nominee the real candidate because biden will not serve out his full term and she will become the president
36: I I think there is room in this political moment and for Trump for sort of a wild card pick in that the driving force of his campaign is that, you know, he needs to shake up Washington, that Washington needs to be broken up. And picking a governor, a senator, a House member just feels so typical politics as usual. I personally am doubtful that Trump thinks that he needs a strong running mate. I think that Trump thinks he's a strong nominee. So, I, th- you know, the, the ability to pick someone from maybe the business world or someone from a military background or somebody we're not really thinking about seems more possible in this political moment than it has to me in past elections where it always seemed pretty clear the universe of people that it was going to be.
5: NPR political correspondents Susan Davis, Mar and Sarah McCammon diving into the first of many conversations around Trump's running mate. You can hear more on the NPR Politics Podcast.
15: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a federal judge dumps Disney's First Amendment lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And Cambridge-based Biogen pulls the plug on its controversial Alzheimer's drug, Adjuhelm. While financial distress at Stewart Healthcare is raising questions from lawmakers about the role of for-profit companies in healthcare, tomorrow morning, Deb Becker will bring us the latest. Start your day here. Tonight will be mostly cloudy and about 34 degrees. Another cloudy day tomorrow. It'll get up to the low 40s. And Friday looks mostly cloudy once again. Highs will be in the low 40s. Then the weekend will bring sunshine. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, where families play and create together. Make your winter special
3: with a visit to the museum, bostonchildrensmuseum.org. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn
15: more at roadscholar.org learning. Chef Carla Hall thinks food is about more than just keeping you alive. It's also a link to history and memory. In Hall's new streaming series, Chasing Flavor, she digs into the hidden
34: histories of some of the foods Americans love most.
15: I wanted to give credit to the cultures that had a hand in the dish. The story behind some of your favorite dishes,
17: tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
27: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukraine's president is reportedly trying to oust the country's top military general in the biggest shakeup since Russia's full-scale invasion almost two years ago. NPR's Joanna Kakisis tells us from Kiev that the military chief is considered a hero and a trusted partner in the West.
36: Word began spreading on social media on Monday that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had asked for the resignation of his armed forces commander, Valery Zelensky. A government advisor confirmed this to NPR and said Zelensky is refusing to leave. But Zelensky's spokesman told reporters that there was no dismissal. That fueled more speculation that a dismissal is imminent and that Zelensky is testing public opinion. Some polls show Zelensky is more popular than Zelensky. Former Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko tweeted that ousting Zeluzhny is based on, quote, emotions and jealousy. Long simmering tensions between Zelensky and Zeluzhny boiled over after a disappointing counteroffensive last year. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News,
27: Kyiv. Jackson, Mississippi's water utility will soon shut off water for customers who haven't paid their bills. The city has a long history of inaccurate billing and boil water notices. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf uh, Gulf States newsroom tells us Jackson hasn't
31: cut off anyone's water for nearly eight years. The cutoff stopped in 2015 after new water meters led to customers getting expensive and inaccurate bills. Jackson started doing some shutoffs again in 2019, but then that stopped because of the COVID-19 pandemic. 2022 saw the city go nearly two months without safe drinking water, so no shutoffs then. Now, after fixing busted pipes caused by January's freeze, the utility plans to start shutoffs soon.
27: Some Jackson customers say they're still receiving inaccurate water bills. The utility says it offers repayment plans to help customers keep the water running. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says federal immigration officials told her additional funding may soon be available to cities dealing with an influx of migrants. Wu traveled to Washington yesterday and met with leaders at the Department of Homeland Security.
10: We shared with them some of the, not only the direct costs that can come from wanting to provide services to families like shelter, like transportation, laundry, but also, again, staffing up on the school side and the extra resources that are needed for everyone to have all of the supports. That is a secondary type of impact to city and state budgets that um, they were taking notes on.
0: Wu says one quarter of the beds in local shelters are now being used for newly arrived migrants. The Boston City Council will accept a more than $13 million federal anti-terrorism grant. Eleven councilors voted in favor of the grant today. Two others didn't vote at all. The money will be used for training and equipment to respond to terrorist attacks and natural disasters. The regional grant was initially rejected by the council last month over concerns about how the funding would be used. Mayor Wu and public safety unions pushed the council's approval. A black man has reached a settlement with, settlement with the Arlington Police Department over racial profiling allegations. Donovan Johnson's lawyers say officers wrongly targeted him while they were chasing a robbery suspect three years ago. They say officers pushed Johnson to the ground, handcuffed and arrested him. Miriam Albert of Lawyers for Civil Rights worked on the case.
19: This case is a quintessential racial profiling police case
13: because the police was already in pursuit of a white male. But for some reason, they saw our client, who was a black male, and they diverted their attention completely to our client.
0: The settlement with the town of Arlington includes a substantial financial payment and agreements to implement increased anti-bias police training. WBUR has reached out to Arlington officials for comment. A new proposal on Beacon Hill would require all state colleges to accept advanced placement exam scores the same way. It's part of a push to get more students of color to take advanced placement classes. Some colleges require higher passing scores. Others don't accept AP credits toward college credits. It's 535. We're funded by
26: you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list,
0: bridgew.edu. It shouldn't get too cold tonight. Temperatures will dip to about 30 under mostly cloudy skies. Tomorrow looks cloudy with highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
5: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
15: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been nearly six months since wildfires swept the Hawaiian island of Maui, killing 100 people and wiping out the historic town of Lahaina. NPR national correspondent Debbie Elliott has been in West Maui this week, checking on how the recovery is going. She's with us now. Hey, Deb. Hi there. So I'm remembering how devastating the images of the fire damage were in Lahaina. What does it look like there now? Well, pretty much the same. Uh, the heart of Lahaina remains
28: off-limits. Um, And debris removal in the burnt zone is only just now beginning. It started about two weeks ago. As of this morning, 21 sites have been cleared, according to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is coordinating this phase of the recovery. So, Mary Louise, to put that in perspective, there were like, 2,000 structures destroyed by the fires last August. Mm-hmm. 21 of those sites now cleared, so this is slow going. The EPA came in first and sort of combed through the ash to remove hazardous materials. This now is the next phase of that recovery.
15: Okay, so that's, that's what you're seeing. What about, what are you hearing? Survivors of the fire, how are they doing
28: It's been a real struggle for people. You know, an estimated 7,000 were displaced, and there's a serious housing crunch underway here. Tourism has resumed in West Maui, so there's pressure for people who maybe had been temporary living in hotels or condos to find more permanent solutions until they can clean up or rebuild their homes, and that could take years. And you have to remember that many of these families are still responsible for paying the mortgages on their burned out properties. Uh, NPR producer Marisa Penulosa and I stopped in at a meeting where residents were trying to get some answers about how to proceed, you know, dealing with permissions for the debris removal process, uh, insurance complications, and all the various programs that are trying to help with temporary housing. And we got the sense that people are just so frustrated with all the layers of bureaucracy and the lack of stability. Robert Rocco told us they're pretty much stuck in limbo.
1: I've been here 52 years, and I don't feel a lot of compassion. (laughs) Our spirits are broken, and so here we are, kind of like at the
34: mercy of the powers that be, and we don't have really much control.
28: Time and time again, people feel like they've lost their sense of control, is what they're telling us. Now, Rocco is staying with friends. Others are living in rentals, or some of them on the other side of the island, which means they have these long commutes, and they're separated from extended family. That is a break from the culture here, where it's not uncommon for three generations, you know, to live in the same house. We've even met some people still living in tents at
15: seaside parks, using generators to prepare their meals. Okay, that sounds awful. So what's being done to address the housing problem?
28: There have been some tax incentives to lure property owners to offer their vacation rentals as long-term leases for displaced residents, but that's not enough, according to Jordan Ruidas. She's an organizer with the group Lahaina Strong. They've set up a protest camp on a prime beach resort to bring attention to these housing crisis. It's called Fishing for Housing. And we spoke with her there by the pacific ocean where she was caring for her three-month-old baby
7: people can't work without having housing a place to live we're just asking for housing and it's a basic human right
28: jordan's group is calling for a moratorium on short-term rentals in west maui until all fire victims have long-term housing and the pressure seems to be moving the needle a bit. The governor has said that if more short-term rental property owners don't open up to long-term leases for displaced families by March, he will consider a moratorium on vacation rentals.
15: Well, so if the recovery could take years, as Maui mm-hmm. maps a path forward, there just must be so many challenges, must be so many competing priorities. It's very
28: complicated, um, says Maui County Councilwoman Tamara Palton. She told me there are layers of things to consider, for instance, historic and cultural preservation and the numerous risks posed by climate change on this island.
36: There's a sea level rise exposure area line and like an extreme tsunami hazard line, erosion hazard line. You know, if we rebuild everything back exactly the way it was, then we have the same vulnerabilities as we had prior to the fire.
28: Many of the people we talked to hear say this disaster provides an opportunity to rebuild a more resilient community, rethinking everything from water use to land management, even to the island's economic
15: dependence on tourism. That is NPR's Debbie Elliott, who is reporting this week from Maui. Thanks, Deb. You're welcome.
5: A dispute between the world's largest music company and TikTok could result in these musicians vanishing from the popular social media platform. (laughs) That would be bye-bye to Bad Bunny, Taylor Swift, and Alicia Keys. and NPR's Neta Ulubi tells us what's at stake.
32: Today is when the current contract between TikTok and Universal Music Group is set to expire. That has set the stage for an old-fashioned power struggle, says music industry analyst Tatiana Cirisano.
22: UMG is kind of taking the nuclear option of removing all their music and kind of trying to prove that TikTok couldn't exist if it didn't have their catalog. We could
32: a catalog that includes Adele. Here is what Universal Music Group wants. Less hate speech on TikTok, more protection against AI-generated content, and, of course, more money it says more money for its artists and songwriters. Take that, says Sirisano, with a grain of salt.
22: This is, in the end, probably gonna do more for Universal Music Group as a company than it is for any of their individual artists and songwriters.
32: Have we mentioned those artists and songwriters include Drake? Here's the thing, these kinds of fights between labels and social media have been playing out now for years, with takedown threats and arguments over copyright protection. What's different, says Tatiana Cirasano, is that young people are using TikTok to both create and listen to
22: music. This is the place where fandom and culture is being built. This is a space where especially young people are going on and sort of listening to music. They're creating as they're consuming. It's a completely different experience than, you know, adding a song to your Instagram story or things that were happening in the past.
32: In an open letter posted this morning, Universal Music Group suggested it did not need TikTok. It said TikTok only accounts for 1% of its revenue. TikTok responded in a statement calling Universal Music self serving and said it had been able to reach agreements with every other label and publisher. Netta Ulaby, NPR News.
8: All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR.
5: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A federal judge has dismissed the Walt Disney Company's lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Disney sued after DeSantis and state lawmakers removed the company's self-governing status last year. DeSantis took that action after Disney's CEO opposed a law limiting how sexual orientation and gender identity can be discussed in Florida schools. NPR's Greg Allen is following this from Miami. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. There have been a lot of twists and turns to this case. Explain how we got to today.
31: Right. Well, last year, backed by Republican lawmakers, Governor DeSantis dissolved a special district near Orlando that, for more than 50 years, had governed Walt Disney World. It was a special arrangement that was set up in the 60s by Florida at Disney's request. That district had all the powers of a local government with its own water, sewer, and waste facilities, also had its own firefighters, among other things. In 2022, uh, Governor DeSantis became angry when Disney's CEO said he'd worked to overturn a controversial law, and that, of course, was was the Parental Rights in Education Act, which limited how sexual orientation and gender identity could be discussed in the schools. Uh, that uh, it drew national attention, that law, and it was labeled Don't Say Gay by opponents. DeSantis became angry at Disney's response when they talked about overturning it. He called it a woe company, and he struck back against Disney. At his request, Florida's Republican-controlled legislature created a a new special district, the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, it's called, and it's controlled by the governor's appointees. Uh, Disney then, of course, went to federal court, saying DeSantis was retaliating against the company, punishing it for exercising its First Amendment right to freedom of speech, and it sued. Okay, so what did the judge say in his dismissal today? Well, today we got a 17-page order from the judge, and he threw out Disney's lawsuit and sided with the state of Florida. Uh, U.S. District Judge Alan Windsor said that Disney lacked standing to sue the governor and another state official who was named in the case. The judge said Disney could sue the new DeSantis-appointed board, but it hadn't shown evidence that the actions by the new board had actually harmed the company. In addition, the judge said if a law is constitutional, plaintiffs can't argue that by enforcing it, it's a violation of their freedom of speech. Has there been any response from Disney at this point? Disney says it will press forward with its case, that's in quotes. In a statement, the company says if the ruling is left unchallenged, it would, quote, set a dangerous precedent and give license to states to weaponize their official powers to punish the expression of political viewpoints they disagree with. If Disney appeals, it will likely go to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta. And Judge Windsor, in his order, had numerous citations of cases heard by that appeals court, which suggests that the court may look favorably on his decision.
5: And what about from Governor DeSantis? He
31: has been fighting with Disney for years. Right. Well, We haven't heard from the governor personally yet, but his spokesman said in a statement, quote, the days of Disney controlling its own government and being placed above the law are long gone. Disney, he said, is still just one of many corporations in the state, and they do not have the right to their own special government. But this is clearly not the end of the dispute. Uh, Disney and the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District Board are also embroiled in dueling lawsuits in state court. Uh, The DeSantis-appointed board is challenging a land use agreement that Disney signed with its old board before the new one was seated. That agreement limits how much authority the new board has over Disney and how they operate and expand their parks. So the bad blood between Disney and DeSantis is likely to continue for at least the next three years that he remains in office as Florida's governor.
5: That's NPR's Greg Allen in Miami.
31: Thank you. you. You're welcome.
15: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston, ahead at about 6.10, an uphill battle for a Republican state lawmaker in Tennessee who's working to enact exceptions to the state's strict abortion laws.
21: WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high tech, and the city's cultural life. Elliothotel.com.
0: Tonight's looking mostly cloudy with lows around 34 degrees. Another cloudy day tomorrow, but it'll be a bit warmer in the low 40s. Friday should be in the low 40s again with mostly cloudy skies and a slight chance of rain in late afternoon. This weekend, we'll finally get some sunshine. This is WBUR.
17: Winter in Boston is no joke. Sometimes the city is covered by a beautiful blanket of snow. And sometimes, the streets and sidewalks are treacherous because of thin layers of ice. We have a few tips from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston to help you survive and thrive in winter. First things first, bundle up when you're outside shoveling or salting. A warm coat with a hat and gloves, insulated boots, thick socks, and lightweight long johns can go a long way. Now for the fun. Slap on ice skates at the Boston Common Frog Pond or other neighborhood rinks, but stay away from any body of water that might not be fully frozen. Or grab a sled and hit the hills. You'll find companions in just about any neighborhood park from the Emerald Necklace to Ronan Park to Bunker Hill.
6: One, two, three.
17: For more on enjoying winter in Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. This
15: is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
17: And I'm Ari Shapiro. When
5: scientists take samples of our DNA for a study, do they owe it to us to tell us what they find? Samples could be for a study that checks if certain genes predispose people to disease or to find out how genetically related different populations are. And what if the study participants are from marginalized communities where people have little education, let alone an understanding of basic biology and DNA? That was the dilemma confronting a team of American based researchers in a remote stretch of northern Kenya. NPR's Narit Eisenman has our story.
8: So, my name is Carla Handley. Anthropologist Carla Handley is sitting cross legged in a mud walled house. She's meeting with an older man in a flowing blue robe. His name is Wario Bala, and he's a member of Kenya's Barana ethnic group, a nomadic people. Who make their living raising cattle across this northern region. Handley notes that elders of this community have given her a name in their language as well.
19: Locally known as
8: Chaututi Lohanti. Which Bala finds a pleasant surprise. <laughs> <laughs> then Handley points to a poster she's brought with pictures on it. And you see
29: here we have this small brush.
8: Mm -hmm. Handley, a research associate with Arizona State University, is making this presentation to fulfill a promise she made seven years ago when she teamed up with some geneticists at her university for a study requiring the collection of DNA samples.
29: Do you remember in 2017 when I was here I was
12: using a small brush rubbing the insides of people's cheeks. So this was the brush that I used to rub the insides of people's cheeks.
8: The cheek swabbing was part of her work studying questions of human evolution why people cooperate with each other and how much it tracks with genetic relatedness the team had published the results in a journal and back in her office she tells me if this had been like most research projects it would have ended there except for something unusual that had happened when handley first started asking to collect
12: people's cheek samples they said you know we will only allow this if you promise to return and tell us what it is that you found. Handley immediately
29: agreed. Being self-determined, having autonomy over your own data,
8: how it's consumed, how it's presented. I mean, everybody should have that right. But the team soon ran into a problem. Where do we find that money? Arthur Kaplan is a professor of bioethics at New York University. He says this is a worldwide challenge for years now
18: there's been a lack of appreciation for the duty to return findings to subjects around the world, rich, poor alike.
8: But Kaplan says that's starting to change as ever more government funding officials and scientists are seeing this as a moral issue. It may also be the key to recruiting a more diverse swath of people for studies.
18: One way to do it is to make the subjects feel that they're partnering with you, not that you're the researcher and the big kahuna, and they're just out there, you know, as a a fish to be looked at swimming in the ocean.
8: So Kaplan says it's not surprising that Hanley and some colleagues finally did get funding from a branch of the U.S. National Institutes of Health that focuses on ethics. But what really stands out to him is that they're testing a way of communicating results to people who haven't had any schooling, never learned to read.
18: This is very, very, I think, pathbreaking. breaking
8: Hanley explains that the method relies on an object that's ubiquitous in northern Kenya, beads. Beautiful, elaborate beading that women and some men wear. Every ethnic group has a different style. And so beads are something that, you know, it looks very much like DNA. Which brings us to her poster presentation to Wario Bala. Hanley points to a picture of two women, one in the traditional attire of Bala's ethnic group, the Barana, The other dresses a member of another group, the Turkana. Then she places a necklace on top of each figure. Most of the beads on them are black, but there are also a few colored ones.
10: So this represents the DNA
12: that is a little bit different between all of us.
8: She starts comparing the two necklaces, bead by bead, to show how much genetic material the team found that the two groups share.
15: First one is orange, first one is yellow. Different. Red, yellow, different. Red, red, Red. same.
8: (laughs) When it's all over, Bala shakes her hand. Thank
4: you.
8: Thank you, he says. This is knowledge we've been passing on through speech, But now, you've written it down. At least one participant in the study is really hoping the researchers will continue to use her DNA. She's a middle-aged woman who asks that her name be withheld because she worries about repercussions from relatives who may disapprove of her decision to give a cheek swab. She says, maybe researchers can use my specimen to find cures to some of the diseases that affect us here. But she adds, they need to keep me informed, because she says.
15: What I gave is a part of my body. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. A drug maker is pulling the plug on an Alzheimer's treatment that was once expected to be a blockbuster. NPR's Sidney Lupkin reports on what happened and what it could mean for
13: patients. Aduhelm was supposed to be a big deal. That's because the drug cleared sticky clumps of protein called amyloid from the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Of the two big studies of Adjahelm submitted to the Food and Drug Administration, one found that the drug delayed the loss of memory and thinking while the other found no clear benefit. A panel of experts advising the agency recommended against approval, but the agency did it anyway in 2021 with a catch. Biogen, the drug's maker, had to do more research to confirm Adjohelm worked and get the study done by 2030. Now Biogen says it couldn't find a partner or financing to help pay for the costly confirmatory study. So it's cutting its losses and focusing on its other FDA approved Alzheimer's drug called Lecembi. Dr. Aaron Kesselheim from Harvard was one of three FDA advisors who resigned in protest over the Adihelm approval.
28: The fact that in the intervening three plus years, That there has been no additional data that's come out that suggested anything positive about this drug is an indicator to me that the advisory committee was correct in assessing this drug did not have good evidence and should not have been
13: approved. Adjuhelm never took off. Biogen initially set its price at $56,000 a year, but demand was so weak, the company slashed the price in half a few months later. Medicare also limited coverage for Aduhelm to patients who were in clinical trials. Still, Biogen's decision to withdraw Aduhelm was unexpected. Heather Snyder from the Alzheimer's Association says patients were still being enrolled in the confirmatory study when Biogen made its announcement. But she says there's a silver lining. The approval
28: of Aduhelm was a landmark event uh, that really provided hope for so many individuals that are or were living with early Alzheimer's and their families.
13: And other experimental Alzheimer's drugs are moving forward in the pipeline. Biogen says patients currently taking Aduhelm will have access to it until November 1st. But patients taking the drug in clinical trials will lose access May 1st. Biogen had licensed the drug from a Swiss biotech called NeurImmune. NeurImmune says it will continue to work on the drug and aims to seek approval for a version that is given by injection instead of infusion. Sydney Lupkin, NPR News.
5: And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
13: Support
22: for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Quill Pure Z's Gummies, Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Join Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi next Thursday, February 8th at CitySpace for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive PhD Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions, February 9th and 21st and La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com.
11: I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org.
5: WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Educators say there's been significant progress overall, but some kids still aren't catching up after the big learning loss that happened during the pandemic.
2: The losses from 2019 to 2022 were historically large. Students fell by more than a half grade level behind in math, for example, nationally. That's a, that's
0: a giant decline. It's Wednesday, January 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Recent raids by police and government officials in Seattle's gay bars have people in the city's LGBTQ community looking for answers. We'll have the latest. And ahead on Marketplace, fewer Americans are choosing to buy homes. So is the American dream a thing of the past?
30: I wanted a house in America, of course, with a beautiful
0: garden. But as I get older, that dream doesn't seem like a dream anymore. That's on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 6.01. First, this news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says President Biden will visit East Palestine, Ohio in coming weeks. As NPR' Scott Detrow reports, Biden has been under pressure to go there since a freight train derailed nearly a year ago, causing major environmental damage.
33: Saturday will mark a year since Norfolk Southern freight train derailed right on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, leading to a plume of burning toxic chemicals, among other environmental damage. The EPA and other federal agencies responded right away and still have a presence in East Palestine nearly a year later. But President Biden never visited himself. That led to criticism from former President Donald Trump and other Republicans. Trump did visit, distributing Make America Great Again caps to people in town, among other things. The crash led to a bipartisan push in Congress to pass a new rail safety bill.
4: But that effort remains stalled. Scott Detrow, NPR News, East Palestine, Ohio. The Walt Disney Company is vowing to appeal. That's after a federal judge today dismissed the company's lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. NPR's Greg Allen explains Disney sued after DeSantis and state lawmakers removed its self-governing status.
31: Backed by Republican lawmakers, Governor DeSantis dissolved a special district near Orlando that for more than 50 years had governed Walt Disney World. He acted after Disney's CEO opposed a state law limiting how sexual orientation and gender identity can be discussed in the schools. Florida lawmakers created a new special district controlled by DeSantis appointees. Disney sued, saying DeSantis was punishing the company for exercising its First Amendment right to freedom of speech. In a 17-page order, U.S. District Judge Alan Windsor dismissed the case, saying that Disney lacked standing to sue the governor. The judge also said the law prohibits plaintiffs from bringing a free speech challenge to constitutionally enacted laws. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
4: Former President Donald Trump today met with members of the Teamsters Union in Washington. It's part of the Republican presidential hopeful strategy as he looks past the GOP primary and prepares for a general election rematch against Joe Biden. Trump's been seeking to win over blue-collar workers in a number of key states. Troubled plane maker Boeing reported its earnings today. NPR's Joel Rose reports the company's financial results were overshadowed by concerns about safety after a fuselage panel blew off a jet in midair this month.
34: In an an unusual move, Boeing did not offer a financial outlook for 2024. Instead, CEO Dave Calhoun spent much of a call with investors and analysts talking about safety and how the company is responding to the dramatic incident in which a door plug blew off a 737 MAX 9 jet at 16,000 feet.
18: We will simply focus on every next airplane and ensuring we meet all the standards that we have and that our customers demand.
34: Overall, Boeing lost $2.2 billion last year, its best result since 2019. But any improvement in the company's financials has been overshadowed by big questions about quality control. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. The Dow is down 317 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Melnia Cass Recreational Center in Roxbury will host 75 migrants by the end of today. It's the fourth family overflow shelter in the state and the first in the city of Boston. WBR's Paula Mora reports officials acknowledge it isn't ideal to take the well-used community space, but they say it's the best solution for now.
12: Governor Mara Haley and Mayor Michelle Wu joined state and local officials in a walkthrough at the recreation center in Roxbury. The center has over 200 beds set up with sleeping bags and there's a play area for kids. Healy says the state had to act because dozens of migrants have been sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. More people will be housed at the center in the coming days.
7: We're here today because we really don't have a choice. Families continue to come into this country, continue to come into Massachusetts.
12: Healy and Wu are urging Congress and the federal government to address what they're calling a crisis. For 90.9 WBR, I'm Paula Muda.
0: We're waiting to find out if the strike by Newton teachers will enter its 10th day tomorrow. The president of a national teachers union was in Newton today to show support for teachers. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the head of the National Education Association encouraged union members to keep fighting for a fair contract.
10: NEA President Rebecca Pringle joined Newton teachers on their ninth day of a walkout. She told the crowd who braved near freezing temperatures that they have the support of the NEA's roughly 3 million members.
17: I know that you will continue to stand up and lift up your voices and fight for your students and for your colleagues and for this community.
10: Newton Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller, meanwhile, requested that educators return to the classroom while the school committee and union resolve the contract. In a recent email update, she said the strike is harming Newton's children, parents and caregivers. For 90.9 WBUR,
0: I'm Carrie Young. A Boston-area startup has found inflexible work environments are pushing moms to leave their jobs. According to a report by Listen to Your Mothers, 92% of women make significant career changes after becoming mothers. That can include transitioning to roles that offer more flexible schedules or remote work. Company co-founder Miriam Rubin wants employers to implement practices that can help retain and nurture talent, especially in fields dominated by women.
22: What's good for moms is ultimately good for employees overall and is ultimately good for employers what we're seeing is one in four moms in our report have left their jobs for a better balance flexibility and more supportive working environments and that's a huge loss of talent from the workforce
0: 60 percent of survey respondents cite lack of childcare as a challenge and reference on-site child care as an option employers could provide skies will be mostly cloudy tonight lows will get down to about 30 degrees it'll warm up to the low 40 tomorrow with clouds. This is 90.9 WBUR.
14: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts, and the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
5: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
15: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Some good news on the education front. After the pandemic upended school as we knew it, a new report shows students making significant recoveries in math and reading. The Educational Opportunity Project at Stanford University collaborated with Harvard in tracking the first full year of post-pandemic recovery between 2022 and 2023. Now, not Everyone is catching up. Many of the students still struggling are from the poorest areas of the country. To talk more about what they found is Stanford professor Sean Reardon, who worked on the report. Professor Reardon, welcome to All Things Considered.
2: Thanks for having me.
15: Tell us uh, just briefly, how did you conduct the research?
2: Sure. What we did was we gathered state test data from 2019, 2022, and 2023 Mm -hmm. from 8,000 school districts in 30 states across the country, and we compared the average test scores of students in each of those districts, and then we measured how much students' scores had recovered by 2023.
15: And the headlines include that in math, students have made up a third of what they lost. It's good, but not quite so good in reading. Their kids have made up about a quarter of what they lost. I mean, are these results surprising? They are. Um, I mean, a third or a
2: quarter might not sound like a lot, but You have to realize the losses from 2019 to 2022 were historically large. Students fell by more than a half grade level behind in math, for example, nationally. That's a giant decline by historical standards. And the third of a year of increase in math is also a very huge increase by historical standards. In a typical year... Maybe 2 or 3% of school districts in the country would see that kind of a gain. So to see it on average across 8,000 school districts is quite remarkable.
15: How are students doing it? Because the fear, as you know, was that schools are are pillars for academic learning, obviously, but for all kinds of other things, for nutrition and socialization and the community. And there was fear that with them being closed so long, the damage might be irreversible.
2: Well, we don't know exactly how they're doing it. And I think lots of schools are doing different things. But some of the research shows that one of the ways to help kids catch up most effectively is things like high-intensity tutoring, extra school time, summer learning programs, the sorts of things that make sure kids have extra instructional time. It's hard to catch up when you're half a year behind if you don't have extra time to learn the extra material.
15: What did you find in less privileged areas where they are not catching up or not catching up as fast?
2: Yeah, I mean, the bad news here is that the pandemic really exacerbated inequality between students in high poverty and low poverty districts and students of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And the recovery has been strong, but it's been relatively equally strong across groups. So the inequality that was widened during the pandemic hasn't gotten smaller. And in some places it's actually gotten larger. And so my fear is that the educational legacy of the pandemic may be a permanent widening of uh, educational inequality. And I think one of the things that might be useful is for states and school districts, superintendents, principals to kind of identify the districts and the schools and the students who are still furthest behind and really target the resources they have to try to provide extra opportunities for learning for kids in those communities. I think Inequality isn't going to undo itself naturally. We've got to proactively seek to undo it. And I think with these data, we're in a position to kind of figure out where to target those resources most effectively.
15: Well, and there's an urgency here, right? There are federal funds in place trying to help students catch up, but those funds expire in September and they've been paying for things like summer school, like tutoring, like extra support.
2: That's right. The federal government provided a historically large amount of money to school districts across the country during the pandemic. And that money has been used and and may be part of why we're seeing such a large recovery. But that money has to be spent or at least obligated to be spent by September of this year. So not every district is going to have fully caught up by then. And so I think we're going to have to have states step in and carry the baton forward to help the school districts and students who are still behind to fully recover in the next few years.
15: Stanford Professor Sean Reardon, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me.
5: Republican lawmakers have imposed tough abortion restrictions in many states. Polls show those laws are unpopular with much of the public. Now, some of those same lawmakers are struggling to defend the laws. This next story is about one Republican state senator who was responsible for passing some very strict abortion laws in his state and is now trying to undo his previous work. Katie Riddle reports.
16: Tennessee is as red as it gets. Republicans here have a supermajority. They control large majorities of both legislative chambers and they control the governor's office. One member of that majority is State Senator Richard Briggs. On this day, he's standing in his office inside Tennessee's Regal Capitol building in Nashville. It's early days of this legislative session. His aide, Rochelle Frazier, briefs him on upcoming measures.
17: And then I have this bill from Representative Freeman, which...
16: Briggs is a military man. At 71, he still stands with attention. His district is in Knoxville, three hours from here. During the session, he rises at 3 a.m. many mornings to make the drive. Fraser tells him which of his colleagues want support for which bills.
17: Um, he is
18: calling the right to die. Okay. That, that one you can send back.
16: One Bill sure. Briggs is championing this session, something he's calling the Freedom to Have Children and Family Act. It would allow women to safely end pregnancies in which the fetus won't survive.
18: What to me is unacceptable is if you determine that there is a pregnancy that cannot live outside the womb and you're going to force that woman Carried that to term.
16: Briggs had a long career as a doctor. In the Army, he was a trauma surgeon. He's seen firsthand how these kinds of pregnancies can threaten a woman's health and her future chances of having another baby.
18: And, And that is the most basic human right we have, is the right for a couple to be able to have children in a family.
16: This is a new stance for Briggs. Five years ago, he wasn't known as an advocate for reproductive rights, Quite the opposite.
18: Rather, in 2019, uh, we passed a trigger bill.
16: A trigger bill, meaning if the U.S. Supreme Court ended the federal right to abortion, the bill would become Tennessee law. Briggs co sponsored it. The bill laid out some of the strictest bans in the nation and harsh penalties for doctors who violate them. But at the time, Briggs says, its passing seemed like political theater.
18: I just did not see going into a long, long debate, discussion, knockdown, dragout fight over something that might or might not ever happen. You
16: thought it would never come to be. the, The
18: truth was I thought it would never come to be.
16: But it did come to be. Three years later, the Supreme Court overturned Roe and the law went into effect. Briggs has not been especially contrite about his role in this legislation, but he has been fighting an uphill battle to change it. Some here say he has a long way to go to make things right. I do think that we find ourselves in exactly the position that lawmakers intended us to be in. Elise Boos is an obstetrician in Nashville.
7: We're scared to death to provide care, and so it's withheld. She specializes in high-risk and complex pregnancies. I think when you sit down in front of a doctor, you always expect them to consider your interest when they make a recommendation.
16: Now, says Boos, she has to also consider her own interest
7: and legal jeopardy when she advises patients. And that feels like a violation of the oath that we take as physicians. Under
16: current Tennessee law, Boos is allowed to perform abortions when the mother's life is at risk. But the law is fuzzy about what exactly
7: that means, and violations could get her up to 15 years in prison. It's a black and white law, and obstetrics is nothing but gray. And so you don't know all the corners and all the clinical scenarios that you're gonna have to practice applying the law to until you finally are in that moment and thinking, Would this withstand scrutiny by an attorney general? Would this withstand scrutiny by 12 jurors who haven't gone to medical school?
16: Boos wants to help her patients through
7: difficult decisions, sometimes the most difficult of their lives. Choosing to end a pregnancy when there's a lethal fetal anomaly can be very hard. I also think it can often be one of the greatest gestures of love that as parents we choose for our children. Senator Briggs is working on
16: legislation that would give more authority to doctors like Boos and lessen criminal penalties. Many in Tennessee support this. One recent poll showed 76% of Tennesseans support exceptions to abortion law for a non-viable pregnancy. Lori Grasso is standing outside a shopping complex. It's in a conservative suburb of Nashville.
13: If it is not viable, then I can understand maybe the removal of the fetus.
16: Agrasso also considers herself anti-abortion. She doesn't even see these as the same
13: issue. But I am totally against terminating a viable living person that is inside someone.
16: Despite this appetite for change, there are significant roadblocks to achieving it. Will Brewer is a lobbyist and legal counsel for Tennessee Right to Life.
19: Senator Briggs wants to create exceptions that we believe are too broad.
16: Brewer says their organization is concerned that this bill would potentially give doctors too much
19: latitude. Bad faith actors can fit a lot of things into that exception and get away with it.
16: The right to life's position looms large over Republican politicians here. Many fear that conservative rivals could unseat them in primary elections. John Gere is a political scientist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville.
20: Well, I think, again, it gets to this fear that you don't worry about the general election. What you worry about is somebody coming at you from the right, and so that you're going to guard that flank.
16: But, Gere says, recent restrictions on abortion may have backfired.
20: Suburban women are leaving the Republican Party. But this problem that Tennessee has is not a Tennessee problem, and it's not a Republican problem. It's a problem of supermajorities.
16: 28 states have supermajorities, where one party has outsized control. But if voters' appetite to change abortion laws could nudge legislators toward the middle in Tennessee, Gear says, it could happen elsewhere. Hey. How you doing?
18: OK, well, come on in. We'll talk about it.
16: Back at the Capitol, Senator Briggs is holding court in his office, trying to round up support where he can get it.
18: Just because you pass a law doesn't mean
16: it's immutable and it's never going to be changed. In this case, change means restoring a woman's right to end a pregnancy in certain circumstances. We'll fix it. But it's proving stubborn to fix. It has proven to be very stubborn. A stubborn law to fix, even though it's a law he helped to create. For NPR News, I'm Katie a. Riddle in Nashville.
15: We're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And we're glad you've started your evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, scientists discover spider webs can be used to trap DNA that reflects the animal population in the area. That could help track biodiversity of different ecosystems. On Wall Street today, it was a down day after the Fed held interest rates steady. The Dow lost 0.8 percent. The S&P dipped 0.6 percent, 1.6 percent, excuse me. NASDAQ dropped 2.2 percent. In low, Local business news, Cambridge-based Biogen will stop developing and selling its controversial Alzheimer's treatment, Aduhelm. The company said today it will end its study of the drug, which was needed for full FDA approval. Aduhelm was initially approved in 2021, despite questions about whether it worked. Then regulators said it needed more study. The drug's $56,000 a year price tag also caused Medicare to limit coverage. Biogen won full FDA approval of another Alzheimer's drug, Lakembi, last year.
21: WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. Turn
32: your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars.
0: Not too cold tonight. Temperatures will dip to about 30 under mostly cloudy skies. Tomorrow looks cloudy with highs in the low 40s, then mostly cloudy and in the low 40s Friday with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston with overcast skies. This is
15: All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
5: And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Seattle over the weekend, city and state inspectors showed up at four gay bars unannounced now members of the LGBTQ community are furious at city officials. Several other establishments besides the gay bars were also subject to police scrutiny. Vivian McCall has been covering this for the Seattle newspaper, The Stranger. Hi Vivian.
19: Hi Ari, thank you so much for having me.
5: People who were at these bars over the weekend describe these actions as a raid. City officials dispute that term. What actually happened?
19: So this all starts early Saturday morning when state and city officials walked into this bar in the capitol hill neighborhood which is seattle's historically queer neighborhood called the cuff and they started looking around the bar owner says that they had flashlights that pictures were taken of patrons and a bartender was found to be in violation of state law for having an exposed nipple which in Washington is actually something that the cops can cite you for if you're selling alcohol on the
5: process. I I, I want to loop back to that law, but why would the police have taken photographs of people at a gay bar?
19: So that's still pretty unclear, but what it would really be if, if a citation were given, they would need some evidence to back up that citation. So that's the reason that photos would have been taken. I will say that the board chair of the LCB has said that photos being taken was unfortunate but it is something that happened.
5: And then tell us more about this law, because as I understand it, in Seattle, it's legal to be nude but not in a place that serves
19: alcohol. Do I have that right? (laughs) That's right. It sounds kind of funny. And one of the bar owners actually gave me a a really good example of this. You know, there is a nearby park where a kickball game was going on where people were playing in their jockstraps, but as soon as they walked into the bar, that would be considered a state violation.
5: Tell us more about the reaction from Seattle's LGBTQ community.
19: So they're not happy about what happened. A lot of people are horrified that pictures were taken. A lot of people were horrified at the image of a bunch of officials coming into a bar with flashlights. That is something that really recalls, you know, historical raids on gay bars that happened for decades where people would be arrested for simply being at a gay bar. And it also has to be said that not everybody at a gay bar wants people to know that they're there. Some people are not out to their family and friends. Maybe they're exploring this new aspect of themselves. And to have that then potentially exposed by the state is a really scary and invasive thing in their minds. Uh, It's also worth saying that Seattle is feeling really defensive of its queer spaces right now because just a few weeks ago, there's a nude beach in Seattle that's been historically queer for decades that could have gotten a children's park put on it through an anonymous donation at a time where queer people are being labeled groomers.
5: The Liquor and Cannabis Board put out a statement where they said, quote, the agency does not and will not target LGBTQ locations. And so what is likely to happen now as the fallout from this continues?
19: So what we're hearing from the LCB board, as well as state lawmakers, is finding a potential solution for this so it doesn't happen again. I talked to Jamie Peterson with the state LGBTQ caucus in the state Senate. He said that they're planning on meeting Friday to iron out some details on exactly how they can prevent this from happening, potentially scrubbing this regulation off the books.
5: That's reporter Vivian McCall from The Stranger. Thank you so much.
19: Thank you so much, Ari. The
15: rich tapestry of life on Earth is fraying, due in large part to habitat loss and climate change. Researchers are racing to track this global decline in biodiversity to understand its consequences and perhaps to counteract it through conservation efforts. Now there may be a new tool for monitoring animals, spider webs. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel.
23: For a long time, if you wanted to know which animals were in a particular place, you'd hike or climb into their habitat and then wait to see or hear them. But that approach can have its drawbacks, particularly if you're trying to reach remote places or if you're trapping animals. That puts a stress on the animals and especially if you're, I suppose, looking for rare and endangered species, that's not a great thing, not something you want to do. Josh Newton is a PhD student in genetic biodiversity at Curtin University in Australia. In recent years, scientists have turned to a different way of monitoring biodiversity, DNA. Morton Allentoft, an evolutionary biologist and one of Newton's advisors, says you can think of DNA as ecology's version of everything, everywhere, all at once.
24: Every species that exists in a given environment, in a given ecosystem, they may be dying, decomposing, urinating, defecating, breathing, whatever. And all these processes facilitate the shedding of cells into the environment and all cells have DNA in them.
23: This is known as environmental DNA because it's DNA from creatures just lying around in the environment. Researchers have swabbed it off of leaves and flowers, filtered it from water, pulled it out of the air, and even picked it up in the guts of dung beetles. One day, as Alan Toft was walking around a lake in his home of Perth, he noticed heaps of giant webs in the trees, made by golden orb-weaving spiders.
24: I've been taught in my biology days, you know, that spiderwebs are sticky. So it's one of those things where you, hmm, you can see they're messy, they're dirty. And I was thinking to myself, maybe the spider webs, big passive air filters, they sit there for days or weeks, months even, that they may very well be capturing the DNA that are floating around.
23: Previous work showed that webs are good sources of insect DNA, including what spiders are gorging on. But Alan Toft and Newton wanted to see whether these webs were also trapping DNA from vertebrate animals, blown there by the wind or deposited by insects. So Newton drove to a woodland sanctuary about 30 miles outside of Perth and collected spider webs from the branches and bushes. We just got a a plastic stick. It's almost, if you
6: look at Shrek where Princess Fiona's collecting spiderweb fairy floss for Shrek. It's very similar to that process. (laughs) You just grab a stick and wrap it
23: around. Were there ever spiders
6: in the webs? We just gently ushered them off the web. None of them were collected.
24: So when we say this is non-invasive, well, the spiders may not really think that, but... uh...
23: (laughs) Back in the lab, they amplified the teensy amounts of DNA from the webs and whammo, animals from down under.
24: It was wonderful. We could see these kangaroos, wallabies
23: in addition to 13 species of birds, the motorbike frog, and the snake-eyed skink. But to really confirm that the webs were picking up DNA from local vertebrate animals, they collected webs at the Perth Zoo. And there they found DNA from giraffes, elephants, rhinos, orangutans, lemurs, meerkats. In other words, the technique worked and represents a new way of tracking animal biodiversity and alerting us when we should intervene to conserve it. findings are published in the journal iScience.
25: I think it's clever and cute. It's a nice non-invasive way of sampling for terrestrial vertebrates.
23: Elizabeth Clare is a molecular ecologist at York University in Toronto. She wasn't involved in the study.
25: There are thousands of papers studying the movement of DNA through water and very few on land. And so we really need more explorations like this to narrow down how far the material travels, how it accumulates, and how long these signals last.
23: So that we can query this worldwide web for information on the status and future of the animals all around us. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel.
5: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Three years ago, Maine lawmakers wanted to reimagine juvenile justice and close the last youth prison. The change was vetoed by the governor. Today, there's no comprehensive plan and problems persist. Details from a new investigation tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR. Tonight will be mostly cloudy and around 30 degrees. Another cloudy day. Tomorrow, it'll get up to the low 40s. Friday looks mostly cloudy. Once again, we might see a little rain in the afternoon. Friday's high will be in the low 40s. Then the weekend will bring some welcome sunshine and temps nearing the upper 30s. Marketplace is next.
32: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert, February 9th and 10th. Tickets at theumbrellaarts.org.